Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. London, how are we? Good evening. Welcome to a very special intimate evening with Mr. Keith Buckley. Before we bring Keith out, I'm just going to introduce myself. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm going to host tonight. I do a podcast called Life in the Stocks, which some of you may have heard of, some of you may not. But the premise of that show is I just kind of sit down and chat to comedians, actors, and musicians about life and their career. This is Haley over here, who's Keith's publicist. So about two years ago, I did a podcast interview with Keith, and halfway through the chat, my fucking recorder ran out of battery, right? And usually when that happens, it still saves down the audio, so I thought, this is going to be fine. Set it up. We did part two. It was great. Got home, listened to it. I was like, fuck, I've lost half the chat. And I thought, in that situation, I can't very well go back and say, should we just do another podcast, because then I'm going to look like a right idiot. I realize now by telling this story up here, I look like even more of an idiot. Um, so I thought rather than doing another podcast with Keith, about a year ago I started doing these as live events. Uh, so I've done one with like Dom Jolly, Sean Ryder. Uh, and about a year or so ago, I did one with Jesse Leach from Killswitch Engage. And Jesse was actually the person who said, you should do one of these with Keith because he's fascinating and he'd love to do it and it would be great. So uh, thanks to my batteries running out, you're welcome. Uh, this is why we're here. So the running order of tonight's show is basically going to be an interview between myself and Keith. First of all, we're going to sit down. We're going to get into music, his novels, his life, everything. Uh, about nine o'clock, we'll take a 10-minute break, give you time to have a cigarette, go to the toilet, buy drinks, etc. 9.15 till 10, 
audience Q&A. So that's when you get to ask Keith anything you want. And I guess, respectfully, anything goes. Like, just kind of think outside the box. Whatever you've always wanted to ask, tonight's the opportunity. Uh, then at 10, we'll finish the show, and that'll give us an hour to basically get through pictures and signings, and everybody here can say hi to Keith and hang out. And so that sound good? All right. Well, without further ado, please welcome to the stage, ladies and gentlemen, my friend and tonight's very special guest, Mr. Keith Buckley. Give it up. I did not know that story about the battery. I thought I'd save it for tonight. I said some of my best shit during that interview, I know. Too. We can't replicate Gone that. Forever, yeah. So we need to change the dynamic, and Boy. now we have these lovely people to, to share the moment with. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Uh, first of all, let's see a show of hands. Who was at 2000 Trees yesterday? Yeah, all well, right. That's, that's a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. I just took my bracelet off. It was getting tighter and tighter as the day went on, and uh, I finally got to cut it off. How was it for you? The show yeah. or cutting off the bracelet? Cutting off the bracelet, I witnessed, and it was uh, quite yeah. a moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, the album. So Hot Damn, that's not an anniversary this year. No. So how come that record, was that the festival's idea? Was it your it idea? It was the festival's idea. Yeah, because we don't, we've kind of been in hiding for a little bit. We've been trying to write a record um, because we're, if we go according to the clockwork that is every time I die, we're due to record a record very soon. So we were like, all right, we got to really hunker down and, and kind of get to writing. Um, but then we got offered the tour with Coheed and Mastodon in the States, and we're like, well, we can't pass that up because it's just an extraordinary tour. So that kind of postponed uh, writing, and then we're like, well, okay, once we get home, we're just gonna, we're finally going to do it. We're going to sit down, we're going to start writing. Then they offered us a fest, and we're like, I don't, I don't really know if we want to like go out of the country because we'll probably have to put a tour around it to make it make sense, and we really need to start writing. And they're like, well, what if you did something special, like Hot Damn? We're like, well, all right, that's kind of cool. So we did it, and it worked out, and it was great. And then I, uh, and I assume there were some songs on that record that you hadn't played live in many, 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 many years. years. And listening back to it to like study it was excruciating. I just the sound of my own voice is just the worst thing I've ever heard. So I can't. I understand that like for nostalgia. People enjoy the record, and it, it harkens back to like a, a very cool time and in, in in the scene and in, and in life for a lot of people. Um, but boy, I don't know. I'm just so thankful that people still listen to us after that record because I listen. And I'm like, why did we do this? Why? What? What, was, what the fuck am I even talking about? Like, why, how did people even relate to this? So, um, but now you know, I'm seeing it through an older man's eyes, and uh, you know, I, I get I get it a little bit better, but. Well, obviously, when you're rehearsing and getting ready for a, a show like that, I imagine a lot of memories from that time are coming flooding back. What do you remember about the man that you were when you were writing and recording that album, like your life then as opposed to now, the differences, the similarities? Um, I was just so excited to be writing and, and to have an audience. Um, and then that was really the most important thing to me was that. I, it's, it, sounds, it sounds kind of bad, but I didn't really think about people listening to the music as much as I looked forward to people reading the lyrics because I wanted to be a writer you know from the jump and that was kind of the reason I got into a band at all was like, I can't play an instrument but I, I know I can probably write lyrics and I would love to be able to do that now the screaming and the singing thing will come later you know because it's two, it's early 2000s late 1990s and everyone's in, in a band and whether you're talented or not if you have the passion that's what hardcore is about. So I was like, well, I'll worry about the actual performance stuff later, but I just really want to like 
sit down and write with a purpose. Um, so that that band, you know, gave me gave me a purpose, and um, I was really excited and, and really like arrogant, and um, I, I was thankful that I had a, an avenue to sort of show off the things that I had learned, and you know, especially that record with Hot Damn. I mean, there's so many references to movies I was watching and, and literature I was getting involved with, and you know, just a all these outside factors were, were affecting my brain at that point and kind of shaping and molding and I was 21 years old so I was just sort of on the cusp of like really blooming into an actual man uh, and uh, I, you know I, I felt like it was just a really good chance to, to show off who I was and um, to me that was exciting but it was also um, a detriment because I, I, I also didn't feel like I was really looking to connect with anybody at that point I knew that, that hardcore shows were a place where you went and you met people and it was different than a concert because you could talk to the people that were on stage and they were kind of just like you and there was a, you know, this incredible uh, interaction between the crowd and, and, the, and the musicians. So it wasn't like a, a concert where there was a barricade and security and you know, uh, the band members were like flying in private jets or anything. They didn't, you know, the, when you went to a hardcore show, the people playing the music were you, just in a different form. Uh, so. I felt like that interaction and, and that connection was secondary. And uh, going back and studying these songs and remembering who I was when I wrote the lyrics, I, I wish I had made that primary, you know. And uh, you know, uh, it, I, I eventually would grow to change that and, and look for the connection first. Um, but that was definitely a, a point where I was just like, I'm young. I'm like I'm, I got the energy. I got the talent. You know, there's no expectations on me. I can do whatever I want in this band. We're just gonna come out of the gate, you know, piping hot. And uh, we did. And uh, I'm I'm very thankful that people gave us chances after that because I don't think we understood what we were doing yet. But if that may, I mean, and like I said, I I feel bad saying that because I know how much those early every time I die records mean to people and how much they connected to it but I, I didn't connect to it. It was really just a, a vanity project at first. Um, but now as things, are, as things are changing in my life and I'm coming to understand my own lyrics better, uh, I do feel like there's some of those things that um, I, I didn't fully appreciate at the time um, and it, it is sort of reflective of the person that I was and the person that I am now. So I do feel as if it's a very personal record, but. Um, only in the sense that it was attached to a person that I don't very much know anymore. But that's growth. It's you know? a long time ago, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's 20 years. It's, that's, that's what happens when you grow, you know? And if, if you're the same person that you were 20 years ago, you haven't fully experienced life as it's meant to be experienced. So, you know, not to, and I, you know, you shouldn't disavow who you were, but you should definitely say, okay, well, I, I see who that was, and uh, you measure the growth that you've taken since that point, so. What about you guys? If you were there, how was it for you? Oh, Thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> it go. was sick. <laughs> you know, the funniest part about it, and I know this, maybe nobody even noticed, but to me it was like the, it was the worst thing that could have happened. So I was listening to the record, you know, for a month beforehand and printed out the lyrics, studying them every night, like rewriting them so I could commit them to memory because it's just how I learn best. And I, as I was listening, I'm like, fuck, there's this, out of all the songs, the part that I really liked the most was the last part on the last song. 
And I was like, this is still a great part. And I could see every time that I'm writing this part today, and I, I could see people like responding to it very well, and I can't wait until this fucking part happens. And then that was the part of the mic cut out last night, and I was like, motherfucker, the exact part I was looking most forward to, and I was like, fuck this. So I threw the mic away. Uh, so Keith's given me a selection of some songs as well that we're going to kind of individually dissect and get into as the conversation evolves. Uh, whilst we're in the kind of hot damn pocket right now. Can I have a beer? I brought a yes. bottle opener. Thank let's, you. Let's hook you up. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about She's My Rushmore. Yeah, let's do it. Um, whew, yeah, so that was the first time I feel like I, uh, I ventured into a, a, a world that I would occupy more and more with each record, which was... Um, be, being a stalker, uh, it's sort of like uh, really uh, aggressive um, ideations of, of love and romance. Uh, thank you. Um, but I remember that one sort of being uh, um, the, the, the time I sat down, I was like, well, I'm going to, there's these things that I'm kind of going through in, in a relationship at the time where it's like I would self-sabotage and then uh, make sure I was present for uh, when the other person realized that I was sort of destroying a lot of the things that I was creating, just basically in order to get attention. I mean, it was almost like a, a Munchausen thing where it's like, well, if I can make myself look sick, then I can make myself look like a hero and I fix myself. And this person who I don't feel worthy of, of love from will see me as a strong sort of, uh, I don't know, vital contender for, for, for their heart because they can see that I could, I could fix broken things. Um, so She's My Rushmore was, was definitely the first, uh, was the foray in, into that sort of mindset. And I think that that would become a reoccurring theme uh, through a lot of songs. But yeah, that was the first one. And it was so uh, kind of unnerving to me to realize that I was capable of doing that, of writing that and, and being honest about that. Um, that I needed to like give it a comical title because it was so daunting that I needed to sort of detract, like deflate it a little bit, detract from the fact that it was. If you read it, it's very sociopathic and it's a little, you know, a little, a uh, little scary to people that know me and, and maybe know what I'm talking about. So I had to just name it after a movie. But the movie was kind of about that too. I don't know if anyone's ever seen Rushmore. Um, but yeah, it's these people that are just desperate to be loved by a girl that, that they'll do anything and it, you know, destroy friendships and relationships and destroy actual schools, you know, just, just to get, just to get attention. So it fit in and it gave me the sort of plausible deniability of like, well, yeah, this is terrible. I'm doing it terribly. Um, and I have really malicious intentions, but, you know, it's also a trope in a movie that I saw once and I liked. So, you know, not my fault. And if anybody in this room hasn't seen Rushmore, you got to check it out because mm -hmm. it's brilliant. Early Wes yeah. Anderson. Um, I want to talk to you about Buffalo, Keith. I've never been. Anybody in here been to Buffalo, New York? Here we go. Yes. Well, loads yeah. of you. Yeah. Um, the, I guess the, the cultural character of that place, the, the geographical landscape, and how all of the elements that you, know, you associate with that city have kind of fed into you as a songwriter and a, a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very depressing place, as anybody who can... Anybody who's been there can attest to, but um, there is, when you get to the heart of it, this this um, incredibly unique um, sort of desperate hope that um, just lingers, and there's really nothing to grasp onto as, as far as proof that anyone should be hopeful, except just this weird 
primitive drive to just stay alive and support your family and friends. And you know, it's, it's the kind of town where if you're born there, you're gonna die there, usually. People don't make it out. If people do make it out, they always come back. It's a black hole. Um, but they, it's, it's these people there that are so um, accepting of who they are uh, that you, you can't help but admire it. And it's a strange sort of dichotomy because when, when you think of people accepting who they are, um, especially if they're miserable alcoholics that come from you know, dysfunctional families and are working terrible jobs, you think, well, accepting is another way of giving up. It's sort of just what people tell themselves when they've decided to give up but want to put a more noble stamp on it. Of like, no, I'm not giving up. I'm just accepting who I am. And you think, okay, well, that's because you're fucking lazy or you, know, you, you don't believe in yourself enough or you haven't had the opportunities. Um, but people in Buffalo have really accepted it in, in a zen way of like, this is just, this is who we are. We are uh, a city that's defined by loss in the sense that the Buffalo Bills have lost four Super Bowls in a row. And, I, and, I, that's, and I, it sounds funny, but that's, it's a, it, when you're there and you're growing up and you're 13 years old, that's a, that shapes you, that, that defines you. It, it shows you that like you can invest everything you have into something and you could will something to happen every minute of every day as people who are Bills fans do. And it doesn't come to fruition. It doesn't have to come to fruition. And the, the you know, the, the universe is, is cruel and indifferent. Um, but it builds you into some, someone that accepts loss and doesn't see that as a necessary, uh, a necessary failure. And it, it's not indicative of who you are as a person just because your sports team lost, which I, I, there's a lot of people that still need to be convinced of that in Buffalo. But when you're used to losing so much and you accept that, and you're a child and you just see, you know, athletes are heroes in, in a sports town, you know, they're, they're bigger than God. Uh, and when you see them disappointed constantly and you see them embarrassed and you see them crying, it's like, man, I, don't, I, don't, I, I guess really there's nothing to believe in except sort of myself, you know, and you do that and in a non-narcissistic way, you just sort of put your head down and you work because the process of work in itself is something to be proud of. And, you find these simple pleasures, um, you know, I, and uh, as dysfunctional as it sounds, a simple pleasure in Buffalo is, is going to the bar, waiting until it works out, you go to the bar. And the city was built on a steel plant called Bethlehem Steel that closed uh, a few decades ago. City went under, lost everything, everyone moved out. You know, people that were, you know, doing the jobs that their grandfathers had done, lost their jobs, lost everything but they kept the bars open for them later. So people were like, well, well fuck it, I'm gonna get drunk, I guess. People and always had money to go to the they, bar. Yeah, 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 you always find a way to, you always find a way to drink. Uh, so that sort of despondency um, juxtaposed against this weird, uh, undefinable hope is a really unique push-pull thing um, that, I, that I see a lot of in the city where it's like, well, you, you know, it's, it's depressing to talk to these people a little bit, but they're still, romantic, they're still idealistic, they still buy bill season passes for some reason, you know, they're just not going to give up. So uh, it's something that I really felt needed to be explored um, as far as like my writing went. Um, and definitely it's, you know, the music too, the music is built from that, you know, that that's, the, the city sort of took to the marble stone of this band and, and chiseled something out of it. So we are absolutely a product of it. As a Buffalo native, how do you feel about Vincent Gallo and about Buffalo 66 in particular? 
I think he's great, um, but I, I think that there is an overall feeling in Buffalo that he is the one that got out. Um, and everyone that I know of that knew him had been proud until he actively disavowed it. You know, and it's, it's you know, I, there's no reason to be proud of where you were accidentally born. You know, I mean, you didn't have anything to do with it. You just popped up out of nothingness in the place where your parents fucked. And that's cool. It doesn't, you had absolutely no say in it. Um, but you shouldn't feel like it's yours, like you did this, this is your place. It's really not, you know what I mean? It's, it's just a coincidence. But he got out and, you know, he could have sort of tipped his hat to the place that raised him and he completely was just like, fuck that place, everyone there's a loser, fuck all these idiots, and you know, where's the lie, really? But, you know, you don't have to say it. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to rub it in, you know? But yeah, I mean, Buffalo 66 is a perfect perfect example of it and I think that's why I personally am like so bitter about it because like he he did it first and he did it best and I wanted to do that I, I like I felt like that was my calling um, and uh, he did it I went to the casting call for that movie by the way really yeah I didn't know that yeah I was uh, four, like 15 years old maybe 16 he had an open casting call for Buffalo has anybody seen Buffalo 66 I don't know if you've seen it it's an incredible movie really dark really sad um, but yeah, it's about a guy that gets out of jail and needs to um, pay off a loan that he got because he lost a lot of money betting on the Bills in the Super Bowl. Um, but yeah, so I went on a casting call for it and he just kind of came down a line. No, there was not even like a reading or anything. He, we, everyone was just in a line and he just kind of came down the line and picked out the person, people that he thought would look the most Buffalonian. Um, and uh, the guy next to me was a uh, he was very vocal about his acting past, and anyone that would listen to him, he was telling about all, this, all the plays he did and things like that. It was, he was just like obnoxious. I was like, shut, shut this guy up. Like, <laughs> but he got picked, and when he got picked, he was like ecstatic, and you know, he loved it, and he, he felt like he was, this was his big break. And then you see the movie, and it's, uh, if you've seen the movie, it's the guy in the bathroom. Oh, that, that's the dude. He's that's looking, the guy. Looking at his dick. Looking at his dick, yeah, yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> that's the guy that was next to me that thought that was going to be his big break. Yeah. Gets called a derogatory term and has his face mashed into a wall. Could have been you, Keith. Could have been me, man. Could have been you. So he's also in uh, one of the Glassjaw videos. Okay, yeah. Because uh, how did that come about? You told me the story. I can't remember. So, if you could show. so you yeah. know, what's the Glassjaw video that he's oh, in? Oh, boy. Shoot. Anybody remember? I can't remember the name. Cosmopolitan the Bloodless. Okay. So Vincent Gallo has a website where he sells anything, including him. He's a shameless self-promoter. Even his semen. He sells his semen online. You can still buy it. Um, and you have to pay more if you want it properly inserted in the yeah, old school yeah. way. Yeah, he's this a is sicko. This kind of dude. <laughs> he's a sicko. Uh, so he, uh, I went on his website because I was a fan. I love, I love the movie. So I wanted to get like a framed or an autograph, something that I could frame, whatever. So I ended up buying a, a poster um, of Buffalo 66. But anyways, f on that website, he sells an, an afternoon with him. You can hang out. You pay him like $10,000 to hang out with him. Glassjaw found out about that uh, and hired him for $10,000, which was their video budget, and they just ma they put him to work, which I guess is a really cool thing to do, because I'm sure Vincent Gallo thought that he was going to show up, you know, like someone would hire him just to hang out with him and like super fan on him and like feed his ego, and he shows up and there's this band putting him to work that doesn't really give a shit about him, but that knows people will watch, so yeah, joke's on him. Uh, let's talk about the music community, the music scene in Buffalo, and some of the venues and the early shows that you guys would have played as a band. And 
Uh, there's a couple I'd written down to my friends from Buffalo, and he said to ask you about some of these places. Ah, oh, bragging the you have a friend from The Buffalo. River Rock Cafe, the Showplace, and the Continental. Any mm -hmm. of those like early Show important venues for every time I die? Showplace and the Continental. I don't know about River Rock, but Showplace and the Continental were definitely huge for us. But the Continental was a goth club when I was a kid, and like in... Um, I guess I was 21 because I was going there, but I really think they let you in if you just had a fake ID, which was easy because Canada was right there, so you could go to Canada and get a fake ID and come back and go in any bar, and they didn't give a fuck. Um, but Buffalo, as far as anyone in Buffalo is concerned, the sooner they can get you drinking, the better. It's like the tobacco industry, but concentrated into, into a city. It's like, get these fucking kids started now. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it works because I still frequent the same bar I did when I was like 17. Um, Tangentially, sorry, gonna go off on a side story. The first time I ever went to this, the bar that I love most, if you guys have been to the pink, it's like the, the just the best bar in the world. I, I hadn't been there yet. My roommate was an alcoholic, uh, and I was writing an essay in college. And he's like, you gotta go with me to this bar. And I'm like, well, I'm 18, I'm obviously not. He's like, they don't give a shit, you gotta go with me. It's this great punk rock bar. So I like, all right, I can use a break from writing this essay. So I go with him to this bar, It's the, it's just, it's heaven. It's the, the the lighting is miserable. the The drinks are cheap. Everyone in there's like, kind of like heroin chic, attractive, like cool. The music's awesome. It was like Barney from The Simpsons, where as soon as I found that, my life just like I don't think I even went home to finish the essay. Ended up dropping out of out of college. Like all everything went downhill from there. So. Um, yeah, so that uh, that bar was. Uh, where was I? Continental. <laughs> the Continental. <laughs> Once I had the confidence to get into a bar with a fake ID, uh, we used to go to this goth club, and uh, I don't know if you've in the '80s goth was a totally different scene than it is now, or it's not, it wasn't very fashionable, and it was sort of like a weird little um, I don't know, like a like an enclave of, of kids that didn't get along anywhere else. It was very much like the hardcore scene, except the music was a little more mainstream. But the, the Continental was this goth bar that just had one wall of mirrors. And I remember walking in there and be like, I don't understand why this bar just has one entire wall of mirrors. And then someone gave me acid. And I realized this is the great, of course it has a wall of mirrors. This is all you want to do is just stare in a mirror and dance. And I remember there being one guy there who uh, I, I would eventually learn that he was kind of a local there, but I didn't realize it. But he... Um, he would dance, he would be on so many different drugs, and he would dance until he was like sweating crazily and take his shirt off, and he had tattoos over his whole body of tire tracks to indicate that he felt as if life had run him over, and I was just like, this is profound. This is a, this is a brilliant man. Now nah, he was just like some weird junkie, but he, uh, it changed my life. I mean, the, the, the Continental was a bar that definitely changed my life and my approach to music because I, I definitely, I realized that like even in Buffalo, which I had considered very... I don't know, just sort of run of the mill, had these separate little pockets of, of fans of music. But that guy with the tire tracks over him, I don't know where he's at. And Continental closed down, so he's probably in a mirror somewhere, just fucking crying and taking ecstasy. Yeah. What about the bands that were kind of from that area that were doing stuff that inspired you? I mean, Snapcase would be one. Yeah, right? that was definitely a, a huge one for me. I, that was just, um, I don't know, I had a cassette tape of theirs. And, would listen to their tapes while I was mowing lawns for a living one summer, you know, when I was like 15. Uh, yeah, but they were also a band that, you know, you would go and see them and they would kind of walk around, you know, it wasn't just hardcore shows they played, they opened for the Deftones when I first saw them on a, on a bigger stage and, you know, they were just like people, they would walk around and hang out with kids and they, I, 
I, I rem specifically remember them needing another person to, to fill in a volleyball team. There was a volleyball court in the back of the venue one summer and I was playing with them and I was like, this is weird because these are like musicians that are, in my head still musicians were, you know, on God, on a God tier. You know, they, they were just people that didn't speak the language that I as just a kid spoke. So to realize that they were human uh, was important for me because I, I knew how much it meant to me, you know, to be able to associate with musicians. Uh, and I took that lesson specifically from that day into every time I die of like, this is who, I, I know how much it means to, to be treated like a person by a, a band member. And uh, I never wanted an ego to come anywhere near every time I die. So I try to uphold that. I try to, I try to always be the guy that would ask a little nerdy kid like myself to play volleyball. Except I'm way too old to play volleyball, so don't, don't ask me to play volleyball. Where did the, speaking about our friend Jesse Leach earlier, where did the Killswitch Ganage connection begin? Because Adam D produced your first record, right? Mm -hmm. And you took them out on tour as a support band on your first headline tour. So where does that friendship begin? Yeah, that was a strange one. We, uh, we I don't remember how the tour got set up. It was just kind of the days before the internet where people were calling people and friendships were being built and like, hey, you want to maybe call a promoter and see if we could drive to a venue and play some shows and maybe link those up and it was something that could be considered a tour. And it was, a, a, on all accounts, a, a total failure. I mean, uh, there were places that we played, we were the, the bands were the only ones there. Uh, there was a show we played in South Carolina where everyone in the crowd I brought up on stage because it was only five or six people and there was so we made it so that there was no crowd and we faced the people on stage you know like we just had that we moved the show from the stage and the floor to just the stage and every band did that because it, there was no point in not doing it you might as well accept the fact that you know this this is not going the way you wanted it to but um, we bonded uh, over things like that I mean it was uh, it was like that's how we were baptized into the scene. Our first experience, really, with touring was was awful. Uh, you know, it was definitely not something that any normal person would have pursued after that. And uh, you know, whenever I I say that the reason I got here this far after 20 years is a, a equal mixture of, of stupidity and fear, it's because I should have stopped back then. I was too stupid not to. Like I just, I knew what I wanted, and I, it, I was not going to listen to anybody, and I wasn't going to, I was not going to pay attention to all the signs pointing in the other direction. Uh, and then once I got into it, it was just fear of getting out. I didn't know what else there was for me. So, you know, those, so those sort of things really shaped Jesse and I, just you know, specifically because of this question um, of we can do this. We don't have to be. Um, successful we don't have to have songs on the radio we don't have to be selling out clubs or arenas or anything they are now but at that point we were just going to do it because we loved it anyways and that's why they're still doing it because that was their approach early on when 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 they were failing when we were all failing together you know and that takes a very special kind of person and he is there it's awesome did you feel like music was your calling from the moment you started doing it did you feel like as soon as you got that taste this is me for life even yeah. if it wasn't going to pay, but it always just being the long-term calling. Yeah, yeah, and I think I was very lucky to get into it um, before the internet, obviously, when so much of what you do now is is dependent on the reception you get. Um, so there was, you know, you'd play a show, and you'd feel good about it, and you'd go home, and there was no checking posts to see how other people felt about it. You know, there there was no... 
positive or negative reinforcement. It was just the gut. And that's everything that, that would guide you to the next step of like, well, do I want to play another show? Of course, I left that show feeling great. And I felt like I, you know, there was people there that appreciated what we did. So we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep going. But I think that it's really sad now. I think that people's uh, tendency, but also necessity to be mean and disingenuous is really deterring a lot of very talented but shy people, you know? And I mean, artists by nature are very aloof and, and you know, quiet, and they express themselves in different ways. So when the feedback that they see online, which if you're a writer, you know, you, you read what people write, and that hits you harder for some reason. I, I don't know if that's necessarily true for anyone, but uh, the reason I enjoy Twitter maybe more than any other form of social media is because it's the writer. Everyone there is writing. Everyone's writing. You know, it's, it's all writers that are coming together to, to express themselves in the written word, and that's a very awesome thing for me. So when someone using their written word turns it into a weapon, it, it cuts deeper. Um, and I think that, you know, so artists that are going to, to online, especially to Twitter, to feel like they're a part of a writer's community, have those words used against them, that's, that's it. I mean, there's, and, you know, there, there's not a lot of people that are very resilient anymore because there's no, they just didn't evolve from that period of time before the internet when you would build up this callousness or almost this, I don't know, ignorance to what people were saying. You just didn't know. You didn't know what people were saying, so you trusted your gut. Um, but yeah, I think that having come from that era before that was, was very important. And it got me to a place where once this did come into play, once Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and social media came into play, I was already used to not looking at it for feedback, you know, so I didn't, I didn't need it and we just kept going. Um, uh, but I do know that, you know, it, it deters a lot of people and that's sad. I think it's interesting because whatever you do, if you're on like a public platform, you should be prepared for criticism, feedback, things like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But obviously the internet then gives voice to everyone and yeah. a lot of people are stupid. And as you say, mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because you, you shouldn't necessarily have to vet critics, you know, it, but it, uh, it, it's kind of like how I look at self-publication in that I could have very easily put out a, a lot of books and, and stories I've written and published them myself but I needed to know that I met the standards of someone that knew more than I did. And I, I appreciate the input of people that know more than I do. And I, 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 there are infinite amount of people that know more than I do. I don't think I'm, a, I'm a, a final say on anything that I do. And I'm constantly looking for input and advice. And I don't take it as a threat to my identity. I don't shun it because of an ego. I, I welcome it and it changes me for the better and I have to learn how to balance it and cope with it. Um, but so when you self-publish, that's not there. It's just you, and you're just going into the world, and you're just putting yourself out there. And it, it might not have been edited in the way that it should have been edited. So you're kind of, while it's easier to get your stuff published, it's also very unfortunate because you're not prepared for the world of critics. And critics are also doing that. They're going into the world of, of being a critic without having ever, you know, gotten hired by a company, you know, or written an article or done anything that qualifies them as critics. They're just in front of their keyboards more, and that's fine. That's just the way the world is, and you have to get used to it, but it does sort of, um, it, it offsets the balance in a very destructive way, as far as art is concerned.
Tell us about some crazy tour stories <laughs> pre the internet, before it ruined everything, and you could get up to whatever the hell you wanted. Okay, we were talking. <laughs> we were talking about this just yesterday. So the twentieth anniversary. It is around two thousand three was hot damn. So it's it's been a, what what year is it? Two thousand nineteen. Sixteen. It's years? been a while. Yeah, it's been almost two decades since hot damn came out, and we were thinking about the bass player that we had on that record, and in one of the first festivals we ever played was in Fredonia, New York, and it was in the woods. It wasn't really a festival, it was just some college kids built a stage in the woods and had like a campfire and set up some tents and they had gotten a bunch of hardcore bands from like New York or Buffalo, Syracuse and Rochester surrounding areas to play. So we end up going to the woods, playing this fest, which is just madness. I mean, it's just, it's not, there's, there's no real gear or anything, there's no real PA, just kind of a very punk rock vibe. And our bass player at the time, got so drunk that he was just, he played naked and he was running around naked all day and it was funny at the time and I think now like, gee, there is no fucking way that would happen now. Absolutely not. He would be me too and canceled it. And as, and rightfully so. I mean, that's aggressive sexuality. But when you're like a young kid in punk rock, that's fucking funny and dicks are funny, you know. And, <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, the the world's a different place. But um, we were thinking. So we were like to our bass player yesterday, like we should, maybe like you should just take off. Yeah, I mean he did it and it worked for him. We're here today, so just go. Maybe you should play naked and you know joking around. He's like, no, I don't think that would work. Didn't you do a show with Stevo earlier? Yeah, on? we did. The Stevo thing was. What was that uh, all about? I don't know. It was. Uh, I don't know how it came about, but it's one of those things that you look back on it and it just feels like a different person, uh, and I don't know how it happened because we didn't have a manager. Somehow we got a call from someone that someone in the jackass camp liked our demo, which was like, what the fuck, what are you talking about? Um, so we went and we, we opened for the jackass live show, which involved like Steve-O and Ryan Dunn um, and the Preston, right? Preston yeah. and um, what's the Wee Man? Wee Man. Yeah. So we went there and we're like, I don't know, we'll see. It's uh, essentially, if nothing else, we'll at least get to hang out backstage with these fucking maniacs with, that we've watched on TV. And, and whether you admit to it or not, uh, if you were a teenager growing up in America, jackass influenced your life. It really, it, it diverted your, your thought process into a, a much more depraved universe than you had ever dreamed of going in. And, well, and it combined all these worlds of skateboarding and punk rock music and hip hop and you know, even like people like Brad Pitt were in that first series. Like, it yeah, was, it was it, a cultural phenomenon, wasn't it? It was. It did for skateboarding what Nine Inch Nails did for strange music, in that it made it okay all of a sudden. Like you weren't. Like it. It wasn't really this. You didn't have to sell out to. When Jackass hit, you realize that if you were a little skater punk, doing stupid shit with your friends, you didn't have to change to make it. So people stopped adjusting who they were and just emphasized who they were and, and tried to sell it. And, you know, obviously that led to a bunch of not so talented offshoots of it. But in the same way that like when Nine Inch Nails came out, if you were a weird little kid making noises in your, in your basement with your instruments, you're like, oh, I, don't, I can do this still. And now there's people that appreciate it. Like, so I remember Jackass came out. It was hugely influential to me because I was a skateboarding kid with a bunch of idiot friends and, you know, we'd take going to the woods with machetes and just spend three days chopping down a tree. And that's like what we did. And we'd drink beer and have a bonfire. Um, so I was like, yeah, we got to fucking do this. I don't know what it's going to entail, but we have to be there. If nothing else, just to meet the, the jackass guys. So we went and we played 
show was fucking terrible. I mean, it was like Slayer fans, but in, in, a, in, a, in a different world in that they didn't want to see anything but Jackass. They didn't give a fuck about music. They're, I don't even know why they had a band opening. These people don't care about music. They just want to see a dude put a staple gun to like his scrotum and you know chug a beer and that was it. So we're playing and we're like we're young kids and we're like trying to you know do our songs and nobody's paying attention so we're like fuck it. 20 minutes set we're off. And uh, I was like alright now I'm you know, wide-eyed, like, I'm going to go meet the jackass guys. And I go up to the fucking dressing room, and Steve-O is just berating the other guys about the bad cocaine he got. And he wants, <laughs> he wants different cocaine. They have to get it for him, like, now. And he's, like, making fun of them. And I was like, whoa, this is, ter- this is like, terrifying. It's like, I mean, it really felt like, you know, it was like this idea that I had of, like, who these guys were and how they were changing pop culture it must have been a brilliant, meticulous formula that they had tapped, figured it out, knew exactly what they were doing, and I realized, no, they didn't, nobody knows what the fuck they're doing, ever, ever. It's just, uh, something hits with the timing and the luck, and these guys were degenerates that were just screaming about cocaine, and there was fucking empty alcohol bottles all over the place. I was like, well, it's kind of cool, but I, you know, you know, you don't want to meet your heroes in that sense. So, you, I, was that the first time that had happened, where I guess you were exposed to the realities of sh- show business? Yeah, the realities of show business, yes. But it also harkened. It terrified me because I remember when I was uh, I was a very little kid. One of my best friends at the time had a birthday party at a roller skating rink, and uh, it was a place called DJ Spinners. And I was like, cool, I'm gonna just go. I was like, I, honestly, I must have been like 12 or 13, just total naive little dork from the suburbs. I'm like, I'm going to go to a roller skating rink and go to my friend's birthday party. I got there, and it was like sh- like Shredder from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles lair, like just kids like all over the place, like drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes inside. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? All my friends were like smoking like they had smoked for years, and I was like, who the fuck are you people? Like, I felt like I'd walked into like, a, like an alternate dimension, and it really scared me because I realized that like that was the loss of innocence for me. That, that night, I lost my innocence. I was like, all my friends are fucking scumbags. They're smoking. They're drinking. I remember, like, I was just in tears. Like, what a dork I was. Like, it's crying because I see my friend smoking a cigarette. So uh, I go home, and I'm, I'm just shook. I'm totally shook. And that, like, really affected a bunch of friendships I had for some reason. I mean, I, I'm so embarrassed to even realize that this is who I was. But, so that was echoed later on in the show business world where it was like these people that I watch on TV and I think I know because that's, you know, when you watch someone on TV, for some reason you feel as if you've developed a bond with them, which is completely irrational. And then I see them and they're just scumbags and, and they don't know what they're doing. And that if, if, if it was something that even momentarily I aspired to be, I didn't aspire to be it anymore. Um, and that's okay. It was just something that was like, I'm not going down that route. Also, what happened years later with Ozfest, where I would see a lot of things happening backstage in the way that, that arrogance and ego affects bands and how it um, sort of informs their personal relationships. So I was like, I'm not, I don't want to be that kind of band anymore. I don't, the, I don't ever want to be the kind of band that would ever be asked to do an Ozfest again. So it was these reoccurring patterns of, of yeah, me being exposed to things that just kind of, I don't know, make me lose a little faith in, in, in idols, but also reaffirm who I think I am, you know? And I think, luckily, you were just surrounded by so many like-minded bands coming up. Um, we've mentioned Jesse. We've mentioned Glassjaw and Dowell briefly. 
and myself and you earlier were talking about Gerard Way. Yeah. And obviously the Umbrella Academy thing that's kicking off and it's amazing. But on the Gutter Phenomenon album, obviously you had Gerard on a track. What's your memory of that band at that time coming up and, and him at that time as a young artist? We were, uh, we were on their first tour ever and they opened and it was American Nightmare, Every Time I Die, My Chemical Romance, American Nightmare Headline. And uh, it was just something that, like, when you saw My Chemical Romance, you know, they were, had, like I said, had never done a tour before, young kids. They just had this inexplicable star power to them that you're like, these guys are just, they don't even know what they have. They, they don't even know what they're capable of. Um, and you didn't know either, except when they got on stage, it was just, a, a, it was a completely different show-going experience in that, you know, their performance, their look, their sound, I mean, everything about them was just so special that you're like, these guys are fucking absolutely, I don't know what is possible for a hardcore band that opens a hardcore tour, but these guys are going to find it and they're going to move beyond it. Um, and it was just a matter of time. I mean, I, I think on that tour, Gerard was in Spin Magazine, and I think I remember like being in, in, in Dallas at a club called Deep Ellum and opening the magazine and seeing Gerard's picture and like looking across the room at him and like not understanding how this was happening, but that it should happen. Um, so that was a really important thing for me to see the, to see developing because you know they even back then they were just very humble and, and incredible people that were you know hanging out all the time and having fun with the tour and they were start their trajectory was beginning and it was just so exciting to see and like as much as I wanted it for myself like God I fucking wish that every time I died I could have done that and and been that the fact that I got to see it happen to someone who has gone on to just do such important work is really phenomenal. I'm very, very lucky to have had like a front row seat for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, and he's, I mean, dude's living, he's living my dream of just like, you get in a band, you fucking destroy it with everything you do in the band. And then when you get a little older, you start a family, you just write professionally and you know, you have creative control over what you make. And I just think he's done it all right. And I remember specifically being on, uh, a tour with him where he was he had stopped drinking and he was starting to get into comic books. Uh, and you know, you look back on it now and that was just the beginning of, the, of a long, uh, incredible path for him. Um, but being in a band for 20 years and touring with the bands that we did, I saw a lot of that. Like I remember being on tour with From First to Last and seeing Sonny. I walked with Sonny to the bookstore where he got L. Ron Hubbard's book on Scientology and he became a Scientologist, and he became a DJ, and he fucking took over the DJing world, I mean, within, like, the next however many months. And I still believe those are correlated. I still believe Scientology and his success has something to do with each other, and I was there, and I could have stopped it. And I didn't. I went with him. I encouraged it. But I didn't know what Scientology was. Uh, I want to talk to you about the music video for Kill the Music, because it's got Michael Madsen in, who's you know, Mr. Fucking Blonde from Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, you're then getting to get these people who I assume for you would have been like a, a kind of a hero, well, not a hero figure, but a, certainly a cool dude that you'd love yeah. to work with. Yeah. Uh, how does that come about and what was that experience like? Is there any fun stories that you can share? Yeah, so Gutter Phenomenon was the first time that I really felt finally aware of what I was doing in a band and seeing that if I did it right, it could benefit the band in incredible ways that I hadn't even envisioned when the band started. And it was almost like I felt like I was on the cusp of something really important. 
Um, because I wasn't doing it like, we weren't just kids anymore throwing riffs together and putting out a demo. Um, we weren't just these like wild-eyed little kids that were just like, oh, we're just gonna tour all the time. It became something where it's like, okay, if we do this right at this moment in time, our lives are gonna change in a very good way forever. And I really believe that, and there were people telling me that. Um, so when that happened, when the recording process happened and we got in the room with Machine, I'll get to the answer. This is all kind of leading up to context. Yeah, yeah, context. Yeah. So we got in the room with the producer machine, and he was like, "Okay, these songs are good because we'd gone in with demos." And he's like, "These songs are good, but they don't have choruses, and we need choruses." And I remember like, "What the fuck is a chorus? Like, what are you talking about?" He's like, well, "We need like a hook." And we're like, "What? Well, there's like a mosh part." He's like, "No, no, that's not like a hook. Like a hook that you'll like be singing." And we're like, "Singing." He's like, "Something that like sticks with you afterwards." And and we we need choruses and we need hooks. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but I was like, okay, if this is the, the change that has to be made in the music, let's try it. Let's see what we can do. So I remember, you know, that's how kind of how New Black came along, where there's actually singing in it and things like that developed. And um, so we were experimenting more with structural arrangements of, of, of music than we ever did before, of like, here's a verse, and then the chorus is gonna repeat after the next verse, and sort of thinking, maybe the lyrics should have it, if not the same lyrics, and placed the same, so the cadence is the same, so people can actually like stick to these songs uh, and remember them after they've seen the live show or whatever. Um, and I was kind of experimenting with that, and that's sort of, at the time, My Chemical Romance was enormous, and Glassjaw was always like one of my favorite bands, so I was like, these two guys that I know have been doing the singing thing, and uh, they've been doing it so well that I've, you know, they, uh, they've earned my admiration as deep as it can go, so I want them involved in this. If this is like the if this is the route we're going, then I want these two guys like kind of next to me or involved in a way. Um, so you know they came in and they did it and um, it was great. And I remember hearing it and just being like, I can't believe that this is something that we're responsible for, sort of thing. So um, Killer Music was kind of the the label, whatever decided that it was going to be like a single, and they wanted it to, us to do a video for it. And the guy that directed the video, his name was Darren Doan who has since become this weird, like, born-again Christian and who now directs Kirk Cameron and all these strange cat Christian movies. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them, but they're all, like, about the rapture and things like that. And he's, he directs all these terrible straight-to-video movies that are just for, like, the, the God kissers. And he, uh, so he was somehow, he, he was owed a favor by a friend that knew Michael Madsen. It was a long, weird story, but somehow Michael Madsen agreed to do it only if we would let him we would let him bring his son to the set, and his son could do graffiti on the set. <laughs> I, everyone's like, oh, all right, this is just like a weird rich person thing. I don't know who the fuck knows, like, who, these demands that this guy has. So, like, all right. So, like, I remember them having to set up, like, this area with all this plaster and, and, uh, and cardboard where his son could just do graffiti all day while Michael Madsen was in the video. And he was very... Um, uh, he, he was very intimidating at first. Obviously, he brought like a change of clothes. Like he brought all his suits. He brought a suit from Reservoir Dogs, which was crazy. The actual suit. The actual suit. That's amazing. Brought it all. Apparently, he has the car from that movie on his like drive to Little really? House as well. Oh, yeah, man. yeah. He was just yeah. He was so he like I couldn't believe that he was allowed to hold on. I I thought you had to give all that shit back, but um, he brought the suit and he was kind of a little standoffish at first. But then as the day went on, he got more and more kind of involved and he was also drinking very heavily. I remember him drinking very heavily. <laughs> Just, and so he was drinking, and I was like, oh, you know, I'll have a drink. Maybe it'll kind of open things up between he and I. So we were talking, and 
he like leaned into me at one point. He's like, I'm gonna tell you a joke that Al told me. I'm like, yeah, who's, who's Al? But Pacino on the set of Donnie Brasco. I'm like, are you fu I'm like, this, he just referred to Al Pacino as Al. Like, assuming that I would know who he's talking about. And I went, I ran off to, like, brag about it. I didn't even hear the story. I never heard the joke. I, by the time I got back, because I was so excited, he was gone. So that was it, yeah. But I'll never know the joke that Al told Michael Manson. One day. Uh, the next record as well, there's some great collaborations on there. New Junk Aesthetic. You've got Greg, Pete, and Matt. Um, I guess if we've got time to talk about all three, we will. But if not, maybe just... Yeah, I could roll two of them in one. Yeah, uh, all right. Greg and Matt were just hanging out of the studio. And I was like, you want to jump on the song? And they're like, yep. So that was it. Uh, the Pete thing was different because... That was the left field one, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Pete one was different because at the time, Pete and I were trying to write something. I, I don't know if it, was, if it was to become a show or like an internet sort of web series thing. Um, but we were kind of going back and forth with ideas for scripts and dialogue, things like that. And one of the things that he had written... Um, was a uh, well, hearts aren't beating, they're counting down. And I, I, that line, I was like, this is a fucking beautiful line. And I don't know if what we're doing is ever going to, you know, anything's going to become of it. But I would love to use this line in a song. And he's like, yeah, take it. He's like, it just kind of sort of like the 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 intellectual melting pot. It's not mine. It's like it came up. You know, it was just a very natural sort of thing that he had written for this project we were working on. And uh, I was like, I feel bad stealing lyrics. Like, I don't ever want to take lyrics without, you know, kind of attributing them to, to who wrote them. So I was like, I'll use it, but would you, maybe you could sing it then. And he was like stoked. He's like, yeah, because he hadn't like done any hardcore things since, you know, he used to be in hardcore bands in Chicago. Um, so he was thrilled to do it. But. He used to be in a band with Tim from Rise Against, right? Yep. Yeah. There was a... Our first meeting with Pete Wentz uh, was when every time that I played in Chicago, and uh, he was an extremely violent uh, mosher. Pete Wentz was. He had dreadlocks. He had like bleached dreadlocks. They showed up in a bubble jacket. Never heard. I'd, I mean, this was our first time in Chicago, and I was like, "That's Pete Wentz." And he, he, this was even before Fall Out Boy. But for some reason, he like had this weird legend status in Chicago scene. And yeah, he was a he was a, a brutal pitter. He got in there and pitted, and they were like, well, if Pete Wentz models for your band, it's a good sign. We're like, cool. Uh, guy with a dread, white guy with dreadlocks? Well, I guess that's fine. All right. Uh, yeah, and then he became a heartthrob, so you never know. <laughs> uh, one of the tracks we've chosen to talk about in a bit more detail is off that record, uh, Wonderlust. And I guess this was the song you were saying to me that you felt like could perhaps have had some mainstream potential and Again, been the one yeah. that yeah. rocketed you guys. Yeah, because every time my hopes were dashed, I would just reinvest those hopes in the next record, you know, and it was that sort of thing. And that's the, that's the stupidity of, of doing things over and over and over that, that fail because you have to have the enthusiasm you had the, the last time, you know what I mean? You, you have to take everything you hoped for um, when you invested in something that you believe in, and if that thing fails, you have to just remove that hope and just shift it to something else. You can't, you cannot let it destroy you. Um, so I had, after Gutter Phenomenon didn't really do the number, oddly enough it is, I think it sold the most, Gutter Phenomenon I think sold the most copies of any record we had, but that was strictly because after that people started streaming records, whatever, it was just a, a lucky time. But So the next record I was kind of like, okay, now this is the song, Like this is the song that's going to be a, a good one, and I was like confident about like the 
the lyrics and the, and the the musical arrangement and everything. And yeah, then it just sort of it floundered again. And I remember like talking to our manager and like, this is it, this is the one. And he's like, no, it's not. I was like, fuck. <laughs> no, but it has to be because I thought it was gonna be the entire time. And he's like, yeah, that was, nobody's gonna, no radio is gonna pick this, up, you know. And I was like, all right, well, fuck it. So we just put out a cool video for it instead. And I thought that was dope. But also, I remember my dad when every time that I would send me the demos and. I think my dad heard that demo before the vocals were put on it. And he's like, hey, I heard the song the guys wrote. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. He's like, good luck with that one. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, it's all over the place. I'm like, I don't know, then talk to Jordan. He's your son. Like, tell him to fucking do, so tell him to do something different. Don't talk to me. It's already too late. Like, I, now I'm, I have to put the lyrics to it. He's like, well, I'm just saying, good luck. It's, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do. And uh, so a lot of it was like, fuck you, dad. And then it was like me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I like that song though, I do, still do, but it's wordy. A lot of the songs I realize there's so many fucking words too and I hate that. I, like I just, I can't believe I wrote so many words. Does that come from an interest in hip hop? Is it that kind of like rapid it, fire? It, on, yes, honestly, it does. And I don't think anyone's ever suggested that before, but it does, it's, it's just, just packed lyrics in. And also it has to do with my fear of a pause. Like I don't, Silence used to be like my worst enemy and like I didn't want people to even have a second to think that I don't know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? So like I was so afraid to give anyone a break uh, that was watching us because in that break they might have a, a bad thought about us. So they might think like, oh, this isn't, I don't know if I like this. If I just fucking flood them with words and they're like, holy shit, I can't stop. I don't know what's happening. And then by the end they're just like, oh, that guy, I guess that was cool. It was constant engagement. But, you know, whether it meant anything was you know, yet to be decided. So, I, I, yeah, I put in a lot of words because I was afraid of, of a moment of silence. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, of uh, um, artists that I, I enjoy that have, I've seen interviews with them. And, you know, it's like they say that, like, you know, let, you have to let the music talk and you have to let the music breathe. And in those pauses is where, is where luck happens and where God happens. And I don't mean God like a guy in the cloud. I mean, like, just like the, the sort of fate of the song happens in, in those pauses where you know people are just sort of forced to reflect on what it means to them. And I, I feel like I did every time I die a real disservice by putting so many lyrics in it. I really do. But you know, it started when I was so young. Like I said, I was just so enthusiastic about it and showing off my writing and being a writer. And you know, um, couple that with, with, like I said, the fear I had. And I didn't let their music talk at all. I was talking over it the whole time. You know, that's unfortunate. Until when? When do you feel like that really changed? Obviously, you. It'll change it. on the next record. Yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah. even think like you nailed that with low teens. I do a little bit. Yeah. There's a little bit more in low teens that I, I let it breathe a little bit more. But that was definitely the that was the first time I felt like I was going to take an active step in like letting the music do its work. You know, and not really, you know, not talking over it so much. So, yeah. Um, map change, I think, was especially. Was Let's jump to a low change track now. Which song were we going to talk about off there? Did I not? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? You oh, did. I was going to say I was going to talk about two summers. Yes, because that's the actual like the the sing song, right? That's the <laughs> only. That was the first song I recorded without yelling, which was I didn't even realize it until we got done recording it, and, and Will, the producer, was like, "There's not a single screamed word in here." I was like, "Oh shit, that's cool." I didn't even realize it. I honestly had no idea. Um, but that's just kind of what the music called for. But um, I think maybe I just want to talk about that one because I'm like the entirety of the album of Low Teens, if anybody's familiar with it, was, and I'm sure you, if you've I've talked about this ad nauseum, is 
the whole thing was inspired by the you know the uh, the birth of my child and and my wife uh, developing help syndrome and her life was threatened and the child's life was threatened and I almost lost both of them. Um, and it was just a very insane winter of 2015 and that inspired pretty much all the songs except for Two Summer. Two Summer, Two Summers was a song that I had started the lyrics to before all that happened. Um, and I wanted to include on the album to sort of give it the album some levity because it was a very serious album. And it's probably the only, aside from Two Summers, I think it's probably the only um, album that there's no like jokes or clever wordplay or you know funny memorable lines you know what I mean like and I tried to always kind of include stuff like that into lyrics you know there's like the ponytail line and, and little things like that to just sort of make it a little looser and, and lighthearted. Um, low teens didn't have that and so that's why it's two summers was so important to me because it was kind of a light song and I'd written it before all that stuff happened and um, I was I was thankful for it because the recording sessions got a little you know I mean those are therapeutic in a way, but it's also very revealing, and it just was a very, having to relive that constantly was very depressing. So it was one of the more um, looser vocal sessions that I did, where I didn't have to think about, you know, my kid in a fucking incubator for 62 days, or my wife Lindsay hooked up to machines for so long. It was just like, I could just kind of have fun with this song and just kind of get away from it all for a little bit. So that song was really important to me because as much as I, wanted to address all those issues on, on low teens and really kind of dig deep, that was the one that was actually the life raft of like, if I could just kind of cling to this for a little bit if I need to, to stop treading water, you know? So that, that song was really important to me. And it doesn't get enough, I don't, I don't think people pay enough attention to it because everyone focuses on the, the story of the, the birth and the, you know, the, the subsequent hospital stay and what that all meant. But it's like, there's this song that's just like, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's an anomaly, you know? And uh, it's fun to play, and I, I had a good time writing it, so I think I'd like to tip my hat to that one. I'm sure there'll be loads of every time I die questions when we get to the your part of the show, so we're gonna move away from the music now, uh, and we're gonna talk about your writing, <sighs> your, your, your novel escapades. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So the first novel, Scale, is I guess really a book that's for people who still have an interest in music, like it can appeal to both people, both readers and music fans. Yeah. And a lot of it is obviously informed by your experiences on the road, touring. Um, I wonder if you could start about how the, the initial idea began to gestate and develop. Um, so the, the earliest foundations of scale came um, probably in like 2010 when I was having a real difficult time being on tour and it was just, my mental health was declining, my physical health was declining, I was just in a really bad place, and I just kind of realized that, like, well, I could do, I could sort of dwell on it and sink further and further into this, or I could go where I know I feel comfortable, which is just writing, and just sort of distract myself and, and, and sort of journal the, um, the tours that I was on. And it was like, you know, we were going to Southeast Asia, we were going to South Africa, we were doing a lot of cool stuff that I'd never done before, so I was like, this is a perfect opportunity to sort of keep track of what I'm doing on the road so that when I eventually lose my mind, which I, I will, I'm sure, at one, one point in my life, I can look back on this stuff and really have a nice record of what I did at some of the... To remind yourself that it was fun. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to, to convince myself that it was fun and not terrible uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> grueling work. But uh, So I was, I was journaling that stuff and I would just sort of set, up, set aside some time every day to do it. And I wasn't writing for any purpose, I was just, just doing it as like a mental exercise. Um, 
But as I did it, and it sort of deflated the pressure that was constantly on me internally to like you know perform and be someone on stage, and I wasn't feeling comfortable with the, the guys in the band. I wasn't feeling comfortable on tour. I just didn't. I felt lost all the time, and I felt like I couldn't move. Uh, as I was writing, I felt better, and I felt like my, my personal space was opening up, and I was becoming more accepting of things I couldn't change, sort of serenity prayer things of like, well, I know what I can change, and I know what I can't, and I'm going to attend to the things I can sort of thing. So um, as that was happening, I noticed that the narrative in these journals was changing and that the, the perspective was altering and that it was, a, a, it was becoming a, a story of a guy that was going through life and finding a balance. And as much as it was me, I was like, well, this is also kind of just every journey in every book and every movie. If you ever look at any major movie that you love, you know, it's about someone that leaves home and finds fulfillment and returns, the departure, fulfillment, return sort of thing. That's the hero's tale, which is as old as time. And, you know, any major movie you watch, is, that's what it tells. So I was like, well, this character that this story is, is uh, depicting has like a weird hero's journey sort of he's you know this guy this guy left home and he hates it finds meaning and he goes home after every tour and I was like that's actually a really kind of interesting way to frame a hero's journey because I was unfamiliar with that I don't know if there's been too many movies or books about that so keeping that in mind I was like well you know I could I think I could put this in 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 the in the framework of a book where this guy is sort of leaving looking for fulfillment um, and, and looking to take that fire home, the, the fire theft of like going out and getting the flame and returning it and sort of enlightening the people that are waiting for him and with the stories of his travels and things like that. So I was like, I could, I could probably do that if I, if I wanted to, but I don't want it to be a vanity project and I don't want to write a biography because I am interested in writing and I don't want to be like this one-trick pony that I can only write about my own life because that's the only thing I know. So... I realized that I could balance it, hence scale, uh, with these opposing chapters of the uh, of like the growth mixed with the present day, and 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 really put together a story about a guy that's just is trying to find balance and, and trying to find fulfillment in this in this world that is just constantly unfulfilling. Um, so you mix up the chapters, right? So the odds are like in. The kind of past tense, is yeah. that right? And then the evens are the present. Yeah, so... So it keeps going back and forth. Yeah, so that's, it's telescopic, and the odds are telescopic in that it's this long process of, of um, upcoming and, and this growth up to who he is um, until it sort of meets where the even chapter started, which is a more condensed version of who he, who he is now. But you sort of realize that everything he does is influenced by his past. And while you read it, it's also essentially because it's a cyclic book influenced by his future and it's all just sort of uh, correlated and, and interrelated and it becomes this really um, interesting story about that I, and I didn't originally set out to do this but because it became a cycle you realize that all of these things are affecting every single action and whether they're in his future and he doesn't know about them yet or they're in his past and he doesn't acknowledge them yet the reader can see how it changes everything and you can almost see it coming like a don't go in there sort of horror thing like no don't open that door because you know that it's going to happen but he doesn't so um yeah it just uh became a story about a guy that was just trying to find fulfillment and whether he did or not is purely up to the reader i think and was the stuff you were going through with getting married and trying to maintain balance with life on the road with the home life is all of that in there is all of that you is all of that inspired by the 
in a um, yeah, it's not necessarily journey that you were on at that time as well. Yeah, um, but it's not necessarily myself. Uh, it is a composite of a lot of people I've met, um, and you know, I I think that when you when you travel a lot, um, just the just the sort of person you are and the energy you project magnetizes a lot of different. They they seem different, but it's this, essentially the same sort of behavioral types um, that that are drawn to you and that you're drawn to, so that. You know, everyone's always talking about like uh, starting over. You want to start over. You want to forget who you were. You want to start over. You're, you're, you can never start over because you carry that in you. That's just who you are, and it's it attracts people. You know, you can't change. You can maybe think you can change who you are, but you're absolutely not changing who's drawn to you. So, no matter where you go and no matter who you meet, it's these reoccurring patterns of of uh, behaviors and um, actions and reactions and things like that. So, you know, he he Ray uh, hates himself essentially. And it's hard for him to, to do that when so many people like him, you know. So that's, that's the sort of balance he's, he's trying to figure out without it really damaging his brain too much or killing him because he's drinking and things like that. Um, so in a way that is me just because I've gone out, I've traveled, I've met a lot of people that I've, it's surprising and it's almost eerie how similar people are to each other no matter how far away from home you get. Um, but also, he doesn't learn. I think that's really the, the, the quintessential difference between myself and that character is he never learns, um, whereas I think I have. Did you almost write it to remind yourself of what you have learned? To go, I don't want to be that guy, I don't want to be stuck? Yeah, uh, there was a lot of things that I had to really come to terms with. And um, facing a lot of that shame um, was, I think, what planted the seeds for Watch, um, which is... Um, Watch is, uh, is about shame avoidance. That's basically the theme of Watch. So for me to have to write scale, I had to face a lot of that shame. I had to go into that storm that John Harvey has to go into and, and in order to like deal with all of these people I had hurt and sort of things like that and just, and just figure out why these people were hurt and why these interactions happened and, and not apologize for them for these actions, not try to course correct it, just look at it and understand how this was a part of a pattern that I was in, that the people that I loved were in, and that people that would probably be drawn to read the book are in, you know? Because like I said, it's just like, you know, you, you're, you attract people whether you want to or not, and you know, it's not up to you who listens to your music or who reads your books, it's not yours anymore. When you put it out there, it's not yours. That you, that's done. It's 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 your kid that's on you know living alone now, and it has a life of its of its own. And you just hope that the people that it surrounds itself with are are thoughtful, you know. So, luckily, I found that to be the case. But. I love both books. I was talking to you earlier. I think they're both just Thank exceptional you. pieces of writing. How did you find your first forays into the world of literature? Because obviously, you're going into new terrain. You're going into bookstores, I assume. Well, Keith's mm -hmm. also going to do a reading for us before the end of this half of the show as well. Is all of that terrifying as, as yeah. new uncharted terrain? Yeah, it's difficult not having a, a band behind me, honestly. You know, it's, it's, it's weird that this event is, is me without, you know, there's, you know, I don't have, the, the, the guys in the band are, you know, we're all brothers, so it's, and we've all been so tightly knit for so long, it's, it's strange to venture out without them. Um, but I do love it, you know, I, I really do, because I really like talking about literature. I mean, that's just something that I've always 
enjoyed. And you know, as much as I do press for the band, I don't, I don't know, music, uh, I, I feel like I've just been talking about our band for so long that it's nice to be able to talk about something else and um, you know, really connect with people on a different level. And it's nice to, as weird as it sounds, it's, I like when people come up to me and go, you know, I don't really like your band, but I like your book. I'm like, oh, that's great because you don't, you shouldn't feel obligated to like the book because you like the band or vice versa, um, and you also shouldn't hide that from me. You know what I mean? It's it's a it's a weird backhanded compliment, but it, it means that people are actually giving it a chance as a as a standalone piece of literature, which is cool. Because I think that writing about the book or writing about the, writing about the music in the first book was um, gave me a plausible deniability of like. Yeah, it's not really me, but it kind of is, but I don't have to say it is because I can rename the character and I could deny that. And if anyone calls me on my shit that knows me personally, I could say, no, that's a different person, even though I know in my head it's the exact what they're talking about because it's very obvious to anybody that knows me. And I can say, like, well, I didn't actually venture into the literary world because I still had, like, one foot in the music world because it's about music and that's what I know. Um, so that was a very slow uh, I don't know, journey, uh, but I think that with Watch, it's a full, like, okay, not music related, not like, this is just a, a work of, of fiction, maybe science fiction that I completely imagined in my head and I, I planned it all out and I, uh, it, it's, it's not related to the first one. But it is in a, a secret, in a secret way. Did you find the second one a lot harder to write? Because mm, it's yeah. quite a, structurally, it's quite a bold achievement. And, you know, as a reader, you really need to concentrate. Like, it's not an easy read, and I mean that as a compliment. Like, it's a, re a rewarding read. It demands your attention. Mm -hmm. um, was it a big step up for you? Yeah, it was difficult because there would be times when, you know, I'd hit a wall and I didn't, I couldn't rely on personal experience at all. I had to, I had to get into, I was, had to be this character of John Harvey, and I had to really figure out what he would do next, you know? So when I didn't know where to go with the story, it wasn't like, well, what did I do when I was in that situation? Because that, that's totally unrelated. So I, I, it really took some time to get into this, this character. And I, that's, it sounds really cliche, and it sounds even like deluded and, and pompous, I understand. But it was this very strange experience of like, I need to step back and like think of, the, think of this other person. What would this person do and really listen to that character that I had invented and, and try to learn from him even though he didn't yet exist. So as I, it was like, it's like that M.C. Escher drawing of the hands drawing each other. Like I created this character but he's talking to me and I have to listen, you know. So it, it was, uh, you know, in another way a very cyclic sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it was hard and there would be days when I'd just write and write and write and write and write and nothing would happen. Nothing, I couldn't keep anything. Um, and then some days, something just fell into place. I mean, probably one of the most like strange, serendipitous moments was when I was, all I wanted to do was keep, to keep the story loyal to the location was find what poster might have been on a bus stop in the 80s. So I was researching Buffalo businesses in the 80s and like who advertised in what bus stations and bus stops downtown sort of thing. And I found this, this company that made prefab fallout shelters actually based in Buffalo. The name is exactly the same as it was. And I was like, this, the, the idea of the fallout shelter as being this island out of time, away from cause and effect, was just such the, it, was the, it couldn't have been a more perfect metaphor for what I needed to advance the story. Where 
There's this thing that you set up that you put apart from time that nobody can get to if you don't let them in, that anything that happens in the world around you doesn't affect you. You can hide and then you can sort of return to the world when you're ready. I mean, that, that, was, that was the fallout shelter, that was his bar, that was the, the, the hole in the wall in the basement where he hit his porn. I mean, that, was ev that became a symbol for everything and it, I, it was just me doing a random Google search. But I was just like putting in the work, you know what I mean? And I didn't know, I didn't have any intention of writing it that day. I didn't have any intention of writing that ever. And I was just, I just had to work. And so I was clicking around and that, that popped up and I was like, this is too perfect. So followed it. And Buffalo is very much a character in the book as well, isn't it? Like it yeah. feels like the location is as much a part of the story as the characters that inhabit that world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, the characters that inhabit the world of of John Harvey and Watch are uh, are animals, and they're all sort of named after animals, or their names allude to animals. Um, he's very much the only real person in that environment. Um, but it's meant to feel like a, a forest. I mean, he has no idea where he is. He's completely lost. So I wanted to make everyone around him an allusion to an animal, a different animal, um, because that's what you're going to find if you're lost in the woods sort of thing. But it's, it, 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 Buffalo is, is so important to the story, and yet you, he obviously doesn't see a lot of it, and you don't see a lot of it. But it is that fact that um, Buffalo is so stuck in its past. You know, we still talk about the Super Bowls we lost. We still talk about the, the hockey game we lost, you know, because of a, a penalty. I mean, I've, you, anyone will rant about it. And I feel like it, it really is a, this Buffalo is like a, a time capsule, it's like a fallout shelter where you can go there and you could do nothing but talk about the glory days of Buffalo if you wanted to. And a lot of people get stuck down there, you know, and it, it's, it's incumbent upon me and, and us and you know people that live there to emerge from it and, and really try to face you know the reality of it that you you're you're embarrassed there's a lot of shame in your life and you can run away from it all you want and you drink yourself into just oblivion until you don't have to deal with the shame but that that shame the, the storm is shame and it's it's going to it's going to find find you eventually you know and especially when you when you kind of pop your head up out of that little hole you know, that, that, that's waiting there to confront you, but it's essential, you have to confront it. And I think that that's, I don't know, maybe if I'm getting in, on a tangent, I don't know if you wanted me to cover this yet, but um, it's essential that he face that shame because that's, that's the primal drive of, of him as a, as a man is to avoid shame and reclaim his masculinity because everything he had done in his life, everything he had experienced was emasculating to him. And, and blindness is a very emasculating um, situation to be in. I mean, the, the loss of sight is, is impotence in a way. You know, there's, there's nothing that, that you can accomplish without seeing things. And he was a failure as a father. He was a failure as a husband. He was a, a failure as a son. So all he wants to do is reclaim that sort of masculinity, which is why in the beginning of the book, he's, he's driven out of his home finally you know, the book starts with he's, he leaves his home voluntarily because he has violently smashed something and he gets an erection. I mean, and that's like, it couldn't be more, okay, that's it. That's those violence and sex. That's a, that's a you know, that's, that's what inspires every male character in every piece of literature. 
he's like, okay, I'm going to, now that I feel like a man again, I'm going to go out of this house where I dwell in and, and lament the loss of my job and my wife and my kid. I'm going to go out now, and I'm going to face the world. And even if it's just to go to the bar and drink, I'm going to be a, an active part of the city I live in. And the first thing that happens to him when he gets out of his house is this woman in white who represents the march of time, sees him, and turns around. And so what that represents is he, he's, gonna go, he's going back into his past, that even when he thinks he's moved on, he hasn't, he, he, he hasn't really dealt with his past and the past shame. So that turnaround of that character going away from him is pulling the story into his past where going back there is an essential part of going forward. He doesn't realize that, but he has to come to terms with that, all that shame that he avoided for so long. Dude, I could talk to you all day. Yeah, we, we're pretty much done with our yeah. part of the show. That's how much has flown wow. by. Uh, we're going to break in a moment. Before we do, Keith is going to do a, a couple of pages from the book Watch and do a little reading for you, if that's cool. Yeah? Thanks. And then Hold we'll on, I'm come get back a beer. and take some questions from oh. you. Hold on, I'm going to have a beer. Is there any out here? Yeah, just in there. Was that all right? You happy? The question is, Keith, is there enough light on the stage for you to see the pages? Yeah? yeah. yeah? Yeah, well, an hour and 20, and I'm leaving you 10 to read. That's a good sign. Cheers, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Uh, okay, I don't want to ruin anything if you haven't read the book. Has, has, have you guys read it? I don't know. Okay. I won't, it, this isn't too much of a, of a spoiler, um, but I think this is sort of the, the crux of the story. Um, just sort of uh, a little, a little backstory to it. So this is the part where he's uh, he's walking through the storm, and, and he uh, he comes upon the funeral that is essentially um, a, a replication of his of his mother's funeral, which he didn't attend. But this is the point um, which also serves as his own funeral in a way that this is where he puts his body to rest after its long journey. Um, and that's not very obvious, but uh, um, I wrote the book, so I'm telling you, that's what happened. <laughs> um, so it, after this point, he, he, when he comes upon this funeral, he becomes uh, strictly spirit in a way. Um, but this is, this is where I feel like the, the story is, this is the climax of the story as far as I'm concerned, which is probably should have happened before page 118, but all right. Um, so yeah, he's walking through the storm and all of a sudden he, he comes upon a, a funeral. So, um, The priest opens the Bible and begins reading. John cannot hear him. From where he stands by the bare maple, he can faintly see a large floral wreath staked into the ground with three thin silver legs on the side nearest the boy. In the middle of the wreath is a photo of a woman, the dead woman presumably. In the photograph, she is on a beach. She is holding her left wrist behind her back with her face pointed up at the sun, eyes closed. She looks to be in her mid-forties, but her shoulder-length hair is silver. There are soft wrinkles near her eyes. Her pants are cuffed and her feet are in the water, but she is wearing a bright blue down vest over a blue and orange flannel shirt. It is the end of summer, and the sky is made a lush, ardent pink by the warm sun that nestles into the horizon off camera. She reminds him of his own mother, also a resident of the sprawling dominion of soil, though John does not know exactly which room she sleeps. He did not attend her funeral, nor has he spoken to any of his relatives since the accident. They no doubt considered John a villain. Like his father, they probably spoke his name with searing contempt, if at all, 
and thought him a petty coward who would not come to Astrid's bedside in her last days because he was aggrieved at a poor old woman for her honesty. The widower of a no-good bitch who abandoned his parents in their time of true grief to mourn the loss of an infatuation he mistook for love. But only John knew what she said to him in the hospital waiting room. No one else, even in their strangest and most forbidden perversions, could possibly imagine such cruelty. Zola, who's his wife, Zola and his parents, particularly his mother, had a toxic relationship from the beginning, which only decayed with the passing of time until the very end of Zola's life, at which point it was an unsalvageable tangle of microaggressions. John's mother saw the woman, his first and only girlfriend, as an insidious tramp, incapable of loving her son the way she felt she, he ought to be loved, and a parasite that took advantage of his selfless naivety. According to her, women like Zola were not to be domesticated. Too dangerous and unrefined were her sensibilities, too vulnerable to impulse and extremes was her soul. She was seen instead as a lone wolf, a devil, disrespectful of their family tradition, resentful of the bond between mother and son, and driven through the uncultivated terrain of her primal immortal life, not by common sense, but by heightened senses, those of hunger, lust, and, and pleasure, dragging their weak, unworldly boy with her, like a cub by the neck, a good boy with an ex unextraordinary dreams, deserving of a life of even keels, shielded from the elements and kept free of unnecessary pain. To Zola, Astrid, his mother, was a, a nosy authoritarian, sorry. To Zola, Astrid was a nosy authoritarian with an obsession for John that bordered on sexual, a stern woman with remarkable natural beauty for someone so petty and mean. She had been exceptionally overprotective of her large but fragile son, and as a result of his exposure to the cruel children who mocked him for his enormity and awkward shyness, Astrid decided early on to shelter him from everything, just to be safe. To her, it was better her boy know nothing than no suffering. As far as Zola was concerned, this was on par with the most heinous crimes, worse than even the mockery such a gentle boy had to endure. She could not comprehend a human being kept purposefully from experience, even the troublesome ones, especially a kid as clever and charming as John must have been. And so, as Astrid found purpose in keeping John in, Zola found hers in pulling him out. She had cast a spell on him, and Astrid would make it her mission to undo the bewitching, a tug of war indifferent to the strain put on the rope they pulled. When John convinced Zola to move into his apartment where she could live without the burden of rent or bills, his mother's disapproval became louder and more frequent, and the stress caused John to lose a considerable, considerable amount of weight. But he also started drinking regularly as a way to cope with living in an anxious life stuck between the only two women that had ever loved him. His mother, rather than admit she may have contributed, saw the dramatic changes to her son's appearance and behavior as evidence of that, slut, that slut's witchery. But Astrid also failed to realize that by so openly disapproving of his new girlfriend, she and Major, his dad, were also chasing their newly independent son further into the wilderness. John may not have been young, but young mutiny had been building in his prisoner soul for many, many years. So when suddenly there arrived an older woman, unpredictable but with a keen capacity for bliss, and as wise as she was passionate, John was so enamored by the newness that he could not help but to surrender. Zola was the embodiment of teen spirit, the key to the door, and though John was already in his early 20s, he found himself enlisting in the half-assed suburban revolution of all ordinary teenagers. Like most, youth, like most youth in revolt, John's nervous energy and freedom had begun to shape a new sense of self. Unlike most, he was an enormous man. But in the private moments, the quiet ones, when John was not distracted by the chatter of combat between Zola and his family, he felt he was an imposter, a trespasser, lacking the intuition of a free spirit and unable to appreciate beauty. He doubted whether he was built for a battle of any magnitude and slowly grew to hate himself for the ways in which he had disappointed his mother, particularly when the voice in his head whispered of adultery whenever he thought of the letter, which was often. Until he met Zola, John was a sheltered, passive, and considerate man. But he had been awakened by an urge for self-actualization and lured out of the nest by a song he could not ignore. Now, out on the limb, 
He questioned if he could ever find a balance between obedience to his mortal family and fidelity to the immortal Zola. He wondered if maybe he had left too soon, equipped with the dream of flight, but cursed with only one wing. Remorseful over the power of his own new heart, John never even told his parents that he and Zola had married. As the casket is lowered into the ground, the man begins to cry. He reaches into his jacket pocket and pulls out a flask. The chrome plating glimmers as he turns it upside down between his pursed lips. The child remains unflinching. That reminds me I have to have a drink of beer. Uh, um, but when John was forced to break the news of Zola's pregnancy to his mother and father, Astrid and Major did not respond with anger as John had expected. They didn't tell him they were disappointed or reprimand him or call her names or disown him or even shed a tear. What they did instead was far more cruel, inconceivably so. They ignored her. Astrid would call the house often in the weeks that followed to check in on John and their little boy, as she had begun referring to her unborn grandson. She made plans that did not include the child's mother. She bought large gifts in preparation for, without consideration for the wants or need of the parents. She visited unannounced, but only when she knew Zola would not be home. And if she happened to return early, Astrid refused to grant her the kindness of eye contact. This again plays into not seeing something as being the ultimate sort of betrayal. When John spoke, or when Zola spoke, they dismissed her, looking through her. And when John tried to introduce some decency into the bizarre performance, Astrid feigned offense suggesting that maybe he should stop drinking and get some rest. Brick by brick, Astrid rebuilt the division between her son and the world, and she would not stop until he and Zola had lost sight of each other completely. The priest scattered earth atop the coffin at the bottom of the grave. He bows his head to the man, then to the boy, then turns and walks off until he is cut off from sight by the tree line. The man stumbles back to the car that he and the child arrived in. Once he is inside and the door is closed, it and all of the cars in the procession pull out of the grounds and are gone. The boy remains. John stays by the tree. He doesn't know how long they will both stand there or whether either of them, or, or where either of them will go next. But for now, the sight of someone else abandoned in the ether gives him comfort, gives his eyes something real to focus on. Minutes pass. John watches the boy. The boy watches the grave. No one moving. Then the boy looks up. He is aware of John's presence. Worried he might run the boy off, John reveals himself. When Zola is six months pregnant, a malignant suspicion that had been festering inside of John takes shape and makes itself known. As he sits on a bench awaiting his bus on a warm afternoon in October, a gruesome thought strikes him. It is loud and articulate and unmistakable, and in its claws, John is taken to a place worse than hell. Hell has answers. You know why you're there, and that damnation is limited to eternity. But where John now languished, where this notion moved him, was a waiting room with no windows, no clocks. It gave no hints. Hell at least attended to its residence. But here, in this new doubt, John would sit untouched, ignored, watching. It's not yours, she said. Without breaking eye contact, the boy reaches down and picks up some snow with a small bare hand and tosses the loose flakes into the grave in the manner of the priest scattering earth. As he does this, the wind picks up, moving a patch of fog between them. Please, John says, no more. Having sensed annihilation, John becomes driven and severe. He is there for Zola, but never really present. He is considerate, but not kind. He takes her to all of her appointments. He paints the room, builds the cribs, builds the toys. He takes the pregnancy preparation class at the hospital and packs the overnight bag. And though Zola is not alone, she must have been lonely. But John is too task-oriented to notice. He is busy preparing the home for his child, his child, his child, his child, arranging building, fortifying, protecting himself from the cataclysm that sniffs at the crack in his brain. The boy does not heed John Harvey. 
He has been readying himself for this moment for time immemorial, and the fierce momentum driving him on will not be deterred by the whimpering of man. He reaches down, grabs another handful, and tosses it as though stacking another brick, adding another corner to turn. The snow falls harder. To John, the boy begins to vanish. To the boy, John vanishes too. The icy walls entombing him and his labyrinth of white wind multiply in number and size. He pleads again from deep within the ruins of his twisting, eternal confusion, but his voice only reverberates off the stinging flurry and echoes mockingly around his head. The last thing John Harvey sees before his collection of peculiar impressions are erased from the record is the gray outline of a child scattering snow over a world at the bottom of a hole. John has told his son is dead. He was right. It doesn't have to be. That whore killed our little boy, says Astrid. One day, no shadows all the time. Put your hands together for Keith Buckley, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. So, uh, we'll be back in 15 minutes, and it's over to you. The floor is yours for the second half of the show. Um, We'll see you in 15. Thank you very much. One more time, put your hands together for Keith, please. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Shall we welcome onto the stage our friend Keith Buckley? Come on out, sir. Uh, So there is a Corona for you just to the left of those waters, should you fancy refreshment. Uh, So this is Hayley. Hayley does all the press for Keith. She helped us set this interview up, so a round of applause for Hayley. Thank you for your help, Hayley. Uh, So I'm going to say who wants to ask Keith a question. If you've got one, just pop your hand in the air like this, then Hayley will come to you with the mic. Uh, just say, hi, my name's such and such, because we want to get to know you. And then ask and fire away at will. Um, so who would like the honor of the first question? Right there, my man in the black T-shirt, fastest hands first. Right, you're going to have to pass it now. Do you want me to stand up? I have my own question. Do you want me to stand up or sit down? For, whole, for the whole 40 minutes? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can do either. I'll sit down. You can stand up. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, have a seat. I'll get compromise. Comfy. 
Half and half. Yes, duh. Far hey, away. Hey, uh, my name's Nick. So Hi. let's start off with a personal one. So what made you decide to cover up your homesick tattoo? Uh, I wasn't, I, I felt like the idea of homesickness is constantly lamenting on something that you don't have instead of being appreciative of, of where you are. Uh, so I, as much as I miss home, I'm not like, oh God, I just want to be home. You know, all the time I think it's a very unhealthy attitude to have. So I've, it's, it was a, a, a step in the direction of, of, of learning to appreciate where I am. Symbolic, yeah. Dude, can we get a tiny bit more volume on the audience mic as well? Thank you. Hi, um, my name's hey. Barry. I'm not really hey. sure how to phrase this, but um, you touched in your books you, a lot of the themes are like about like masculinity, and mm -hmm. you touched a little bit about um, touring with My Chemical Romance. I was just wondering. I grew up like really into hardcore music and non-mainstream music, but as a gay man, and obviously masculinity, there's a whole yeah. issue, a whole right. run of issues around the scene, everything like that. I was wondering, how did you reconcile the idea of being like a hardcore musician, but also the vulnerability of like being a writer and being able to expose yourself, and especially in your books, like the, there's a lot in there. Like, um, how did you reconcile those? I mean, it's just the, the sort of thing where uh, you know the, the hardcore scene was for for a lot of people um, uh, something that was very, like a boys' club, you know, and I never felt like that should be the case ever. Um, I was never afraid of any sort of things that might be considered feminine. Um, you know, our, our logo's pink in a, in a world where, you know, everyone's wearing black and it's very, you know, masculine and, and it's, it's aggressive. Uh, you know, I, 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 I just feel like that was something that should have never been instituted in the first place. Um, you know, some of my favorite writers are women. Some of the people I've always looked up to, the, as far as musicians, vocalists, were women. Um, so I, I never really felt like I was part of that boys club. Uh, I, I did feel in a way that I was sort of infiltrating it and um, it's sort of, I, I guess, doing my best to deconstruct a lot of the, this, this mythos of like, well, you can't, singing isn't welcome here because that's just, that's not our world. This is, and, and you know, so that was something that I was trying to do. And I was just really trying to deconstruct a lot of the things right off the bat, uh, even humor wise was, Something that I was trying to introduce that wasn't very welcome, and I, you know, probably could have got us in, uh, sort of blacklisted from from the hardcore community. But as far as like the idea of what is masculine, um, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I have no idea. I, but I do understand the, the way it's been portrayed in a lot of literature, and like I said, it's like. The, the, the violence and sexuality is obviously attributed to, to the, the masculine energy, but and you know as a, as a English major, I was taught that the only two things that pe people ever write about are, are Jesus and your penis. That's like that's what, and that stuck with me. And uh, you know, for the most part, that's true. Um, but Watch was especially important as far as that goes, um, because. Um, where I, where I started the, the basis of who John Harvey should be, um, I realized that uh, there's no better way for a man to understand who he is than through the love of a woman. So, you know, he, he came in, you know, everyone comes into this world through a woman. I feel like in every movie you watch, whether it's a, a romance or a drama or sci-fi, anything, uh, the feminine energy there is extremely important in revealing who the character is, and you know you're going to find out that these people are, you know, these guys that start off 
very hard-hearted, end up falling in love with a woman, and it softens them, and that, that feminine energy attributes to their sort of enlightenment. Um, so that was important in Watch because the point was that John couldn't know who he was. So he had to have the women in his life eliminated. And I don't mean to sound like that's like a terrible, like they were executed or anything. But like the, the avenues that he could have learned about himself um, needed to not be open to him. Uh, so I remember one of the, uh, so a friend of mine that read Watch, one of the first people that read it, I think before it even went to print, told me that it was uh, to be careful because it, was, it sounded very insulting to the women in my life. And they didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, but they, they, they kind of assumed that the book was about me and that the, the people in the book were about people I knew. Um, and they said that it was very insulting to the women in my life, which they're not in my life, and that story's not about my life. But in order for John Harvey to remain a stranger to himself, he had to have a woman's love removed from his consciousness. So it wasn't enough to just say that he could be divorced from his wife or estranged from his mother, because even though they're divorced or estranged, that love exists. And as long as that love exists, then he, he can find a way to tap into it. So they had to actually be dead. And that was the whole purpose of blocking him in, in this very masculine, unfulfilling world, where the only way he could have transcended it is th through a woman's knowledge, or you know, through a woman's love, and that was cut off. So uh, he never really got there. So it does, that is, a, that, that, those sort of fixed gender roles, uh, as far as like the way it goes in, in normal, uh, you know, blockbuster hits or best-selling novels is definitely something that I don't usually find to be very uh, interesting. Um, and I, I like to sort of do without them if I could. Great question, dude. Thank you. Uh, next up, let's go to the guy in the white T-shirt, please, Hayley. I feel like a, like a, I don't know, like a, hey, how are you kids doing? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just sitting up on the arm of a like chair, but I can't see anything. Yeah, I don't, yeah. yeah. Okay, hi. Hey, um, I'm Ravi. Uh, hi. Question, so you've spoken a lot today about sort of guest artists you've had on Every Time I Die albums. Mm -hmm. Are there any particular guest artists that you think are your favorite and any reason why? Um, I honestly, I think uh, Brian Fallon from Gaslight was, was one of my favorites because he is so aware of how talented he is um, and unafraid to tell you that. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, all the other, uh, a lot of the other, well, no, actually 100% of all other people I ever asked to be on a record did what I told them to do. And I, it wasn't even like, uh, you, I wasn't like enforcing it strictly, like, you got to do this, this is the only way you're going to make it on this record. Uh, but I was just like, here's my idea, and here's my lyrics. Uh, would you like to do that? And, and everyone was like, yes, 100%. But Brian was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it this way. Um, I'm going to do it this way. And if you don't like it, then I'm not going to be on the record. And I was like, well, geez, because fucking settle down. Right? Uh, but so I sent him that part, uh, the way that I had written it, and he, he sent it back in the way that he envisioned it, and it was infinitely better uh, because he's a great songwriter. Uh, so I liked working him, the, even though he wasn't in the studio with us. And he might have been the only one that, come to think of it, might have been the only one that wasn't in the studio with us. It was just like an email exchange, but yeah. So oddly enough, that made him my favorite to work with, because he didn't he didn't like what I did. And did he make it better? 
He made it, yeah. Uh, yeah, extraordinarily better. Well, but nobody's ever heard the nobody's ever heard the thing I did first. <laughs> just different, just different. Yeah. Yeah. I'll hum it into like a voice memo on my phone and put it on Twitter or something. You guys didn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up, was there a guy just down the road as well there? Same row. Uh, hi, my name is Alex. Hi, Alex. Uh, I was just wondering if you take any specific um, different approaches when you're writing as part of the damned things as you do towards writing with Every Time I Die. Uh, yeah, uh, Every Time I Die is just is, um, two isolated uh, writing groups. It's the band that'll write songs and figure it out themselves, and then when they're done, they give it to me, and it's, it becomes, I'm just like the step after that in, in a process, um, which is not ideal. I don't love it, but it's just sort of a pattern we've fallen into, and sort of thing, like, if it's not broke, you know, you don't fix it. Um, so Jordan and Andy get the riffs. They go back and forth. They eventually call in Steve to sort of uh, sort of punch it up with bass, then they'll go to the drummer, whoever it is at the time. Uh, <laughs> that that drummer, drummer X, will uh, put a spin on it, and then I'll I'll get it, and then we'll go into the studio, and then the producer will sort of arrange it uh, as he sees fit. But with the damn things, it's I am I am uh, on the ground floor from the from from the inception of it, which is very cool. Um, it's it's usually just Joe Troman sending me demos of riffs he's done, and then I kind of hum a, a melody or something and send it back, and we sort of go back and forth like that until we have a melody affixed to a riff, and then we um, you know talk to uh, Dan. That's how the, the this new record was. Talk to Dan, and Dan will sort of you know have his ideas because he's also a vocalist and. and um, we will just kind of work from there, uh, and then when it comes time to the lyrics, it's something that I, I you know, I'll, I'll say that I have stuff written, and we'll sort of piece it together. And Joe will even look at the lyrics, which is, is a very strange thing to give someone, um, like raw lyrics that I haven't even thought about cadence or anything. I'm just like, here's a bunch of stuff I wrote. See if you can figure out what works where it does according to the melody we wrote. So it's this, you know, it's a puzzle that we do together, um, which is interesting. Uh, it's, in a way, it makes it less personal, um, but it sounds better, I think. I mean, it's just catchier, you know what I mean? The music's catchier, and it's also like, Joe's from Fall Out Boy. Like, fuck Fall Out Boy, no, I mean, they're, they're I, the only band, I think, in history that's ever been like, we're not gonna be a band anymore, and then everyone's like, oh, that sucks, and then they're like, wait, we wanna be a band again, and then they just went right back to the top of like, I, and I can't, I don't even think that's ever happened before where a band just came back and was like, yeah, we're just gonna be the biggest pop band in history again. Uh, so he knows what, what a catchy hook is, and um, I, I definitely trust him. So, so it's a weird process, but, you know, learning. There was a song that we didn't get to talk about earlier on the subject of the damn things, mm -hmm. Friday Night. Yeah. And the reason you told me you wanted to talk about that song is because you hate it. I fucking hate that song. Let's talk about it then. <laughs> so that was the thing. That was the thing where on the first Damn Things album, um, I was just so blown away by the fact that I was asked to be in a band with guys in Fall Out Boy and Anthrax, and I just didn't know what I was doing. But these guys were so advanced in their musicianship and in you know their histories uh, as musicians that I was like, well, I just have to just put all my trust in them, even if it doesn't feel right. Uh, so I had I was constantly second guessing myself uh, when they would come back with ideas for melodies and 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 vocals and, and lyrics and 
things I was like, I, I felt like it didn't, it didn't sit well with me, but okay, these guys know what it's like to do this. They've been doing this longer than I have. I trust them. Um, so with Friday night, I, I, that was the first time that I, I had actually like come up with a melody for the verses. I had written the lyrics myself. I was so fucking proud of them. I was like, these are really good melody, melodies, I think. I think I'm finally getting the hang of this. These lyrics I'm proud of. They're not too corny. Um, and then the chorus came for us to work on, and Rob Caggiano, the, uh, the other guitar player at the time, was like, oh, dude, it's just got to be about partying. I'm like, I don't fucking want to sing about partying anymore. Like, that's just, it's not something I want to do in this song particularly. It doesn't really fit. He said, no, it's got to be, you got to just, it's got to be about partying, like having a good time. And I'm like, that, I, this doesn't, I'm not, it's not, I'm not connecting with this. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but we were like, I was kind of like, I kind of got bullied into it. And so the whole, in, in my head, those are two different songs. The verses are an entirely different song than the choruses. They don't gel together. I'm embarrassed to sing the choruses. I don't give a fuck about a Friday night. What the fuck, Friday night? Who gives a shit? I mean, what am I? I mean, it's like a high school drama. Like, I don't, I don't care about a Friday night. I don't even have a fucking job. Like, I'm not looking forward to Fridays. Like, every night is a Friday when you're on tour. I, it's like, oh, boy, I can't wait to clock out and fucking really, really hit it on Friday night. Like, I, I have a fucking three-year-old kid. I'm on tour. I'm not, I don't care about Friday. So, uh, yeah, I don't like singing that song. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, a Sorry of if any of that was anybody's favorite song. Look, it is a catchy song. I'll give him that. He did it. But those lyrics in that chorus were not my lyrics. And I was like, I don't want to sing about your Friday night. I don't know what you do on a Friday night. Uh, next question. We'll go down the front here, I think. We'll go these three in a conglomerate. <laughs> Such a polite, polite crowd. You guys are too polite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very good. American. Hey, I'm Matt. Hi, Matt. Hey. Um, you mentioned before your, your love for hip-hop. I believe I saw it in a video with... Uh, Jesse, and you mentioned it mm -hmm. earlier. I was just wondering, because when I write, I don't like to listen to rock and metal because I don't want to get like any outside influence yeah. that kind of creep in. So I listen to a lot of, especially New York hip hop. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering how has that influenced your own writing, and if there's anyone in particular that you can point out because I equivalent equivalent there. Ah, you know, I mean, equate, you yeah. equate yourself to. To a Nas, I think you are oh, hardcore Nas. Thanks. So I was just wondering if, um, yeah, me too. <laughs> I was just wondering if there's anyone Sorry, in particular yeah. that you would point out and how that genre has affect, has influenced your writing. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely think that it's um, the, the the as far as as lyrics are concerned, uh, it's incredible in the way that it, it plays with the language. Obviously, so that's always why I've been kind of drawn to it. Um, I think that currently LP is probably the best lyricist there is out there as far as, as like the mastery of the language. Aesop Rock, I think, is Aesop Rock's ability to catalog the entire English language is fucking profound. I mean, he's he's using words and, and using cadences that I don't think have ever been used before. But I don't necessarily, and this is not to disparage him whatsoever because I love him. I don't necessarily that think that equates to a song that people c could relate to. Um, I think that that's just a, uh, you know, he's just sort of demonstrating what he's capable of. Um, and I, I understand the approach to writing lyrics of like, well, I don't want that to, to influence me at all, so I'm not going to listen to that. But it's, it, that's, you got to be careful with that because when you actively hold something out, the things that are going to come in are things you don't want in. 
You know what I mean? There's going to be shit that sneaks in. You don't exist in a vacuum. You can't just write out of the blue. You're going to be influenced by something. So I think that if you're at least like acknowledging what you're allowing into your perception and into your writing process, it's going to be a lot healthier than not understanding where this lyric came from, not acknowledging it, and then a few years later being like, holy shit, I stole that, and I didn't realize I stole that because I had listened to it when I was a kid, and I, I just didn't listen to it when I was writing. So now it got in, and now I look like an, you know I, I look like a thief, or you know, I'm, I'm plagiarizing something. Um, so I, I think that it's important to sort of expose yourself to a lot of the things that you do like without and and not actively steal uh, from them. Um, but as far as hip hop goes, I mean, it's very hard to listen to a lot of hip hop and not be influenced by it and not actively take from it because there is so much borrowing in that community between like, you know, uh, even cadences where you'll, you'll hear something and be like, why, he says that like an old song from like the, you know, the 90s or the 80s or 90s, whatever, and you realize that it's a, you know, it's an homage to it. Um, but I, I really feel like as far as people that are doing something original in, in, in hip hop, it's, I mean, it's, it's LP and it's, it's Run the Jewels. And I don't know if that even answers your question, yeah. but I'm just thinking like, they're so important, uh, especially to a guy like me, because uh, LP was just this underground producer forever, and then he got he turned 40, and all of a sudden he's like a, a rap star, which is like Andy Williams becoming a wrestler when he's 42. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, like you, you would think that that phase of your life is over and it's not going to work for you, and then all of a sudden you just, it just fucking pops off. So um, LP is a huge inspiration just as far as like his career trajectory. So. Yeah, I would uh, definitely sort of at least know what I'm taking from and, and sort of approve it as it comes into your conscious when you're writing. Yeah, and hip hop is definitely a lot of fodder for that. And what's yours, dude? Um, hi, my name's Joe. Hi. Hey. Um, with Watch, there was a, a really awesome like, cinematic trailer with Michael Rappaport. No, but Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard, yes. Yes, yeah. Matthew Lillard, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, how did that come about? Because that, that dude, like, He's known as being shaggy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then suddenly, scream. Yeah, scream. Yeah, yeah, scream. And then and have you watched like, Good Girls? Have you watched uh, Good Girls? No, but I saw him in Twin it's Peaks, the and best. he was amazing in Twin Peaks. I thought like he was so cool. So how did that come about? And then I just want to know like your love of film, and is that an area you'd like to go into? Would you like to write film, make film? Because yeah, I would definitely love to. I mean, I kind of alluded to it before, but G Gerard Way's life trajectory is just ideal to me in that he, he took what he created and, and made it into a visual art. Um, but so, the thing with Matthew Lillard is he was, um, he was on a Warp Tour, I think in 2012, he was promoting a movie and Warp Tour did this really cool thing where he was on it and, and like screening his independent movie at night for kids that had come to the show and maybe didn't want to listen to bands all day or wanted a break and he was showing his, his film. Um, and we just kind of became friends just from being in the same areas, and he, he would come and watch our band, and, and you know, he kind of eventually would come over more and more often until we, we met him, and just talking to him, and you know, he, he really seemed to, I mean, from SLC Punk, you know, obviously he has like this, even if it was just an acting role, he, studying for the role, he got into punk music and, and sort of had an affinity for it, so he and I really, I don't know, hit it off, and uh, we've been in touch ever since, and he and I are working on a, a, a series project right now, um, that's just in the very uh, nascent stages, but um, he was really, really cool, and uh, I definitely think that like writing, writing film is something that I would love to do. And that trailer came about because I, I, as I was writing it, I kind of saw it visually. A lot of the things that were happening, and it's weird to say that about a, a book where you 
the, the character doesn't see anything, but I saw that, like how that would look, and I really pieced it together like a, almost like a, a, a movie. Um, and, you know, as I was kind of thinking about that and, and wondering if it could possibly be something visual, you know, uh, there's other books that I, I loved that I didn't realize were written for that medium. Uh, when Peter Benchley wrote Jaws, he, he wrote it hoping that it would go to film and the, 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 the chapters or scene breaks, you know, you can almost read the book like, like the script to Jaws, essentially. He did that intentionally. That's what he wanted out of it. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of books that do that now. A lot of Stephen King books do that where he's hoping to just sort of, he wants people to see it as they read it. Um, and I thought that was really cool and really important. And uh, I, 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 I actively set out to do that. Um, so when um, a friend of ours, Brandon Dermer, who did the It Remembers video with, with Brandon Urey in it, he, he was the director of that video. He's like, we should do like a trailer for this book as if it were the movie that you were envisioning when you were writing it. So yeah, we, we filmed that and put it out and then people thought that it was gonna be a movie, which is <laughs> cool for a second, but I was like, no, 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 sorry. I had to break a lot of hearts and tell him that it wasn't, but hopefully it will be one day. That's still the dream, though, right? That is still the dream, yeah. If I can get that made a new movie, that'd be great. Yeah. And Mr. Yellow T-shirt. Hi, Keith. Hi. My name's Charlie. Hi. Um, what's your favorite song to perform live? I know it might change, um, whether it's sentiment or just because it's fun. And also, Jordan said on Twitter that you'll be back in January to the UK. Can Are we reveal really? Are we allowed to say that? Can you reveal who with? And as, long as, it stay, as long as it stays in this room. Also, this is a trust exercise. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, it, is it with Wage War? That's my question. I could no. say no, it's not. But we will be back in January. But I won't say with who if I can't. Say it, say it. Just don't put it online tonight. Is that a deal? The poster's up? Oh, All right. Uh, so we're say doing it. like two weeks with While She Sleeps, I think, over here for a few days. Yeah, that should be sweet. Yeah, that'll be cool. Uh... Yeah, right? Okay. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm on the fence a, on this okay, one. Okay. I won't say any more than that. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, what was the question? Oh, oh, yeah. Was, oh yeah. So I like to, um, uh, I, I think It Remembers is probably the most fun song I have performed just, just because it's one of those, it was the, when I was talking before about letting the music do a lot of the talking, that was the first one that it was me like making a conscious decision to like, this is such a moody song. I don't want to uh, like, I don't want to flood it with lyrics. I don't want to flood it with anything. I just really want to like let the music speak and create a, a vibe. And I think that song does create a vibe. Um, and even though it's not me doing, um, it's not too too much work in the song. It's it's still fun to just see the the atmosphere that it creates in the crowd because, you know, you'll put it between. It usually goes in the cellars before the coin has a say. So it's like, that song is almost like hypnotizing where people just kind of like vibe out and then the coin, uh, coin starts and then it's like, oh fuck. And then they, they get, so it's, it's that relationship between the, that song and the rest of the songs in the set that makes me appreciate it so much. Any more questions from the back of the room? Oh, oh God. Any from the back? No, just, just to give them a shot. I guess no is the answer, so we'll go to this no, gentleman. No, no, yeah? yeah? Where am I going? Yeah, over here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm coming around. Don't worry, we'll get it. On from the back, huh? Okay. Put your hand up again. Who was it? Uh, the lady with the blonde hair here. Hello. Hi. Uh, I'm Deb. I don't know if you care, Hi, but I'm Deb. I do care. <laughs> um, 
do you deal with uh, writer's block and how do you push through that uh, when you might feel as though you, you maybe can't write anything more than what you've already done? Uh, I don't know if you feel like that. Yeah, it's, ter it's terrible. It, it really <laughs> is like, um, whenever I encounter it first, it's usually like, I'm very dramatic about it in that I feel like, okay, this is the first sign that my mind is going, that I've, I've damaged myself beyond repair. There's no coming back from this. I officially have nothing to talk about anymore. So what I used to do when I was younger was write about writer's block. And I thought that that was like, yeah, that's a kind of a clever way to get myself out of it. Um, but looking back on all this shit I've written about writer's block, it sucks. Uh, and it's just very vapid and it's very just sort of ornery and like, I don't know, it's just the, the it's the, it's n there's nothing genuine about it. It's just me trying to like juke writer's block of like, and but I'm not really saying anything. I'm just trying to get around it. Um, so now what I do is just settle down and just wait. And it really is just patience. Um, and it will happen again. I mean, it's not something that you, if, if you like writing and, and, and you're good at it and it's something you really want to do, it's, I know this doesn't, uh, there's no scientific proof to back this up, but it, it, it will just happen. It will happen. You just have to wait for it. You have to be open to it. Meditating works for fucking sure. Uh, you know, and don't even, don't even think about the writer's block. Put it aside. It's like that one, I, I, this is a terrible movie. Maybe it's not a terrible movie. Men in Black, where they were like, they were trying to like solve a crime. He's like, you got to go for a piece of pie. And he's like, I, I got to fuck, well, I, don't, I have to figure this problem out. Why do you want to go for pie? And he's like, because you, you just trust me. Let's just go get a piece of pie. He's like, no, we have to fucking solve this thing. And then they just sit down. As soon as they stop thinking about the problem, it come, the answer comes to them. And it's one of those things where you just you have to clear your mind. And if you're obsessing about the problem of writer's block, you'll never get around it. So I, I, do, I, I guess I'd just suggest meditating and never letting yourself get bothered by it because it will happen. It will, for sure. Do you ever get fucked up to write or did you ever used to do Okay, that? so I used to, again, and that was just one of the things that it was like I was so afraid of... of uh, in the initial stages when I was writing, I was doing it because I was excited and I liked to write. Uh, then once I realized that people were expecting something out of our band, like once Hot Damn came out and I realized that, okay, well now we're like, shows are doing well, we're not you know, playing in garages or, or basements anymore, like promoters are booking us. It was, then I got, just got terrified. So it was that plausible deniability that you always give yourself when you're drinking of, well, it wasn't me, it was the alcohol. So if, if I would write when I was drunk and someone, question me about something I wrote, it would, it would be like something I did when I was drunk. Like, oh, man, I'm sorry. I don't, I, I don't know how to account for that. I was drunk. That was a very cowardly thing to do for a very long, and I did it for a very long time because I was fucking terrified of, of having to, to be accountable for the things that I wrote because they were so personal. Um, uh, so now I can't drink. A th I won't drink a thing because I, I really want to feel like I'm, I'm present in, in the moment when I'm writing, and I want to be able to talk about what I've written and I want to be able to know the effect it has on people and the effect it had on me and you know um, I, I think that it's not an easy thing to do and it, it's definitely better to um, sort of put up that wall I mean I did for a long time putting up that wall of I'm, I'm, I'm just a I'm just a lovely lovable drunk and no one could ever hate me I just, I'm, just, I'm just smiling red-faced bloated drunk and no one can know who's gonna get mad at me I, you know but um it was a really terrible way to live, and, and if, if, I, if I needed to be serious about writing, which I, I eventually realized I wanted to be, then I needed to do it with a clear head, and I can get drunk later. I get drunk at things like this. I get drunk when I talk, not write. Okay, yeah. Well, they do say, like, kind of, like, write 
fuck, but then edit sober. Did you ever okay, do that? Okay, yeah. Uh, terrible advice because you... Uh, <laughs> Fuck, it is, if you look back, I, I would just recommend staying drunk the entire time then, because the second you look back on what you've written drunk when you're sober, you're like, this is just fucking garbage. Garbage. I can't, I mean, again, without like sort of despoiling the idea of, of any of our records, like a lot of new junk aesthetic I wrote when I was drunk, and I, I'm like, what? Who is that person? I don't know what those lyrics are about. I can't memorize them. I don't even, I don't even remember writing them. And it was just such like a, I mean, maybe that's kind of cool, I guess, for when I was, you know, I was a young kid, but like, man, it's such a waste of an opportunity. It's such a waste of an experience because I, you know, I, people would kill for that opportunity to be in a studio and record music with the band they grew up, you know, writing with and, and doing something important. And I don't, I don't associate with any of that. None of those songs on that record I, I, I feel an accountability for because I was just fucking hammered writing it. So um, it's a shame. I mean, it's, a, I mean it's, it's good that at least if I'm drinking, I'm not driving or you know, texting someone. I'm writing lyrics. But, um, you know, How do you feel work. when you play songs off that record live then? I don't know, do, I don't know if we do. I think maybe yeah, one. Yeah, maybe Roman Holiday, I think, is on that record. And we play that one. Yeah, Wanderlust is off that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Again, that, that song was like a fuck you dad sort of song, so I, uh, I feel good when we play that one. But yeah, uh, no, I, there's a lot of them that, like even the ones that, you know, that Matt, Matt was on and, and Pete was on, and, and we play uh, the one that Greg was on. But again, it's just sort of like I don't have any connection to it, so we, we do it because, you know, it's just gone over well with people. Um, but as far as like what songs like really hit home, none of them are, are ones that I've written drunk. And I'm not saying I hate the ones I've written while drunk, but there's a different energy coming from the ones that I've written sober. That you can't really necessarily now relate to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman here with the glasses had the question. Second from the right, right there. Uh, Let's have a round of applause for Haley. She's killing it. Haley literally said she doesn't want to get married because she hates when people look at her. So this has got to be just the worst torture. <laughs> hey, Lee. Uh, hey, I'm Ollie. Hi. Um, with From Parts Unknown, it's probably considered your most aggressive album, and you recorded it with Kurt from Converge as well. Um, was that a decision that the band made, or was that pushed from Kurt, or, and how was it working with Kurt as well? Um... I think we had locked Kurt in before we started writing for that record, so we knew that it, it you know, that already kind of set the tone for it, is that we, we knew that it was, it was going to have to be a very strange, aggressive album. Um, but that was also the first record after I had sort of begun exploring meditation, which was a, a weird juxtaposition because we were going in to record with a guy notorious for his, like, dark, negative energy with Converge, and... I was coming from a mental state of like, I'm not really angry anymore. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't really have shit to be pissed about because I can't, I can't, if I'm going into a record cycle, I'm not going to volunteer um, uh, this, m these months of recording and touring and things like that to this n negative energy that I have to convey on stage every night. So it's like, I don't want to do that. I need to clear my head. I, you know, my head was, I felt like I was in a different spot mentally. But knowing that I was going in with Kurt, you know, that was just like sort of, I, I mean, it was just, I felt like I was going to be wildly unprepared 
uh, for what he would want to do with the record. Um, but instead of like just being like a super positive uh, album, it was really just sort of a, a, about uh, disavowing the old habits that I had gotten into. You know, I can't speak for what they were doing musically because that's the that's a very personal relationship that they developed with Kurt. But I know that between Kurt and I and myself uh, and I when I was writing the lyrics was was like not necess- If I had to sort of focus on an anger it would be an anger of the person that I was and, and really sort of bring that to light. So, you know, the idea from Parts Unknown was like, where did this fucking sudden positivity come from? I didn't really understand it, but it, it changed the way I approached songwriting um, and lyric writing. But it gave me a lot of, definitely gave me a lot of material, but a lot of it was about the transition um, from becoming just this, like, this sort of misguided, angry kid into like realizing that I have to take responsibility for my own mental health and, and how that was going to move forward. And I think it was pretty strange that that was the one that we went to the guy from Converge to, to produce because Converge raised me, you know, and everything they did, they, they sort of molded my, my young anger, you know, and now we're finally getting in a room with him and I'm not angry anymore. It's just like, like I, I, you know, I've wasted all this time, and this is when it really counts, and I show up to the interview sort of wildly unprepared, but um, he was good. He was very just kind of open to any ideas we had. Uh, there was um, a lot of the anger, I guess, that went into that recording was um, when I started, the first day I went to record vocals, I developed bronchitis, uh, and that shifted the time of recording back like two weeks for me to recover fully, and I was just like... It was the sort of writer's block thing, but instead of writer's block, it was like performance block. Like I literally had no voice. I was like, "Fuck this! F- I, like I can't do this anymore." Every I've disappointed everyone that's ever believed in us. I'm f- fucking useless. When it comes time to really fucking perform, I, I don't have what it takes. I'm fucking I'm nothing. Like just this doubt that was just fucking festering in me, and then it went away one day, and all of a sudden I had my voice back, and so I just we ripped through those songs. So those songs, that that album was one day. I did all those songs in one day. Yeah, because I was so fucking, I hated myself. It, it made me hate myself, which was a nice turn of events. Uh, you mentioned meditation a couple of times, and if anybody has read the book Scale, um, Matt Skibber features as himself a lot in that book, um, and he turns on the character in the book to meditation. You were telling me earlier Matt Skibber was the guy that turned you onto it. Yeah. Tell me about that introduction of that process from him and what it's had. In terms of a positive effect on your life, he's a he, he he's a very interesting person, uh, and I, I, I it's very hard to like tie him down or, or, or figure out what he's about. But when we did Warp Tour with him in in 2010, maybe eight or ten, I forget, um, he was just someone that I was drawn to, and I, I had never been around them before, but I had always been a fan of Alkaline Trio, so I knew that his his lyrics resonated with me. They were very dark and sort of self-deprecating, um, but very, very intelligent. And I knew that he was just someone whose brain I would like to pick if I were ever in a position to pick someone's brain. Um, so when we got on that tour, he was just a, just a weird dude. I mean, he would just put on like a fucking like, like a, a army outfit and just ride his bike around and like by himself. And he was just like, he was just one of those guys. He was like a, like a, like the crazy homeless guy that you would see like walking around in you know downtown. And you're like, I don't know if I, I don't know if that guy's interesting or just nuts. And I'm kind of afraid of him, but I'd like to know his backlog. So, 
eventually there there was a chance where I could finally introduce myself, but he was just extremely interesting, and I, uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, through the course of the tour, he told me about meditation, and um, I had never really met someone that was uh, so actively advocating meditation, um, and uh, it reminded me of a lot of things that people that I loved in my life had said, um, and people that I admired for being very, like, clear mentally uh, and, and happy and um, just up, you know, uh, uplifting uh, the, the sort of people that, that made the, the world better when you know, they were around. He reminded me of those people. So I was like, well, if this is the underlying source, if this is like the common thread between all of these people that I love, I'm going to have to sort of give it a chance. Uh, uh, so I did, and it led me down a very, very long and, and strange path that um, yeah, definitely changed the trajectory of my life because I was very, I was, I was not good. I was, I was not in a good way for a long time. So meditation changed me, and I, I, I feel like he, he kind of single-handedly deflected me into a, a much healthier spot. I mean, that's, uh, that's healthy is, is a, that's a subjective term. I feel better knowing that that's something I can do, um, and I, I think more people should get involved with it. Um, but it is life-changing, and it was for sure. Pulled me out of a dark spot. Yeah. Cheers, Kibber. Okay, we've got time for two more. Hold on, so she's, we, she's at her hand at the whole time. We're going to go <laughs> one, we're going to go two, and then we've got to call it. Uh, so over to you, my dear. Hi, I'm Kaylee. Hi, Kaylee. Um, absolutely hypothetical situation. Can, who would you like to imagine seeing doing your songs? If you had to step out for a night and you could pick an artist from any genre... Any music that you like, who could you, who would you be most interested in seeing perform in your song? Okay, so... Liv living or dead? Either. Any. E oh. So it was very difficult for me when I had to step back from Every Time I Die when uh, my wife had, had to have our child taken out. Uh, and Jason from Let Live filled in. And it was very shocking to me how smoothly that transition went. <laughs> and I, I was like, fucking hell, this is like, too, yeah, I was like, god damn it, this is too good. Because uh, I would just watch videos online. Uh, and then I was like, well, okay, so if, if I have to be out of, if I, if I can't be involved in the situation of touring, this is a great, great dude to do it. Like, you know, I've, I've known Jason for a long time, and we have the same sort of approach to, to music, and I know that he's super enthusiastic about it, and loves what he does. Um, and I was like, this is, it's, it's like watching, you know, y your spouse sort of become romantically involved with the guy you fucking knew was just gonna, it was, <laughs> you knew they were flirting the whole time, and then you finally see an online video, like, oh God, I knew it. Um, so I was like, that's it, okay, I've, I've gotten used to the shock of this. There can be no one sexier to my band than, than Jason. This is, this is the worst thing I can imagine. But also good for them, they're happier. Um, and then, then the next year I had to leave a tour when we were in Europe because our, Susanna had a seizure and had to get hospitalized, so I had to fly home. And they got Sam from the Architects to fill in it, and I was like, oh my God, this is just like Fabio, like just sleeping in my bed. <laughs> Like this is the this this is the worst because he's like he's just he did everything I could do but better. So um, if I had to relinquish these reins, it would be to Sam. I think for sure. I love Sam. 
Uh, did you put your hand up as well, dude? Yes. We're going to do two then. So this guy yeah. first, and then we'll do you as your last one. So make yours good. <laughs> no oh, pressure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll go. Yeah. Well, okay. Hi, um, Hi. My name is Dean. Um, there, was a, so, there was a tweet that you put out, I think, last year, where I was you drunk, said so that you... <laughs> done a lot of them. Um, where you said that you don't pander to bigots. And then Corey from Norma Jean, very quickly after that, mm -hmm. put, I don't care what you do or what you're like, buy my records. I just want to get your thoughts on that. You cool to answer that? You good? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I've made my thoughts very clear on that. I don't care what band you're in. I don't care what position you hold. Uh, that's disgusting, absolutely disgusting. So I definitely don't. I, I don't think that that should be in this scene. Um, I think it's, it's just insanely spineless. Uh, I think that this scene is, uh, is founded in um, uh, equality, and, and um, I don't think that you need to tolerate intolerance um, at all. Uh, so I, I feel like if you're willing to sell your records to bigots because they have money, then you're one of them. You know, and that's that's the sort of intolerance that that's, this scene should not should not welcome whatsoever. But you know, I uh, you know it's it's obviously a a lot of people will be like, well, it's you know the, you know people have a right to say what they want to say. Fine, you don't have to go to jail for what you're going to say, but there will be social consequences, you know, and you should be boycotted, and you should absolutely not feel comfortable being in public if you're going to be an outright bigot. Um, and it's our job to make their lives hell. So, yeah. Over to you, sir, for the last well, question. Well, first, I guess, on behalf, man, thanks for this. It's been fucking awesome. Cool, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Uh, who would you see do a live interview and Q&A? Um, there's a lot of people that I would really um, be interested in uh, learning a little bit more about, but I think that maybe that their exclusivity is what makes me so attracted to them. Um, and I'm still of the school of like, don't you know, don't meet your heroes sort of thing. So I, I don't want to know too don't much. Say about that anything. just before the meet and greet night, please. <laughs> oh shit, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it's just <laughs> everyone volunteers so much of themselves all the time online. So like, well, you know, it's it's hard to say that I don't know anything about someone that I want to know about because they're they're volunteering that information. Um, so I think that the people that I would really like to, to understand are the ones that I, I, I know from my past in, in this industry. Uh, and I, I see that they're sort of a different person online, but I know that they might feel a little bit. Um... Dude, I want a name. Oh, oh yeah, you want a name? Okay. Uh, I would like to see Daryl Palumbo on stage. Yeah, because I think that he is one of the most interesting people I've ever seen. Um, one of the, I, I, I worked with him on the, I, I did a project called Tape that he produced. I was in the studio with him for two weeks. A fucking brilliant, brilliant human being who was the singer of one of the most influential bands in hardcore, maybe in, 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 as far as like American college is concerned, definitely in my life, who has almost, he doesn't even consider it. He's like a DJ, you know, he just wants to write beats. And it's, I've never seen someone work so diligently at something that, the public doesn't know that he's good at. He has so many hidden talents that it, the world would be a better place if he would let them out. Hook me up then, Keith. Let's yeah, all right, I'll talk to him. Yeah. Uh, first of all, before we wrap up and say bye, uh, obviously, as I said, just we'll be out there in a couple of minutes. 
queue from the front of the bar if you wouldn't mind down there and we'll take time to meet all of you have pictures get stuff signed uh, we've got a Polaroid camera if you want signed Polaroids signed prints and signed books uh, but all that shit aside please join me in thanking our amazing thank guests thank you very tonight. much for coming on Mr Keith Buckley appreciate it. appreciate it thank you did you enjoy it I loved it that was great that was great thank you very much we'll be out in five thank you very much Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.